Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Robinhood, The Great Courses Plus, C.W. Hemp, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. When we went to Atchison in July of 2018 for the Amelia Earhart Festival, we couldn't have known the saga that would unfold around a very ordinary-looking little haunted house there that we almost didn't even visit. We had heard of the Sally House, and we knew the stories about its history were chilling. But in spite of that, we were in danger of overlooking it as a destination during our time there. Fortunately, or unfortunately for Scott anyway, that house reeled us in and, well, you all know how that turned out. In the final part of our series tonight, we'll offer our conclusions about what we think is in the recordings we made while we were there. But more than that, we're going to talk about what's happening there today and the continuous collection of ongoing evidence, all very different from ours, that, like ours, defies explanation. Tonight we have an interview with Dr. Sean Daly, who has conducted over 50 investigations in the house and has gathered some startling video evidence. We're also going to be talking to another member of the Pickman family, Taylor. Taylor was the baby you may have seen in the sightings TV show about the Sally House from the early 1990s. He grew up with these events, and what he has to say about them is fascinating. So before we depart from this topic, join us for one last visit with the Sally House. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I've never seen that house fail to produce, and I think it does that on purpose because it wants to bring people back. Taylor Pickman, in his interview with us from October of 2018. Welcome to the final part of our series on the Sally House of Atchison, Kansas. Yeah, why do we keep coming back? Because we can't stop talking about this place. Also, it wants you to. Stop it. <laughs> but I do, to be fair, I, I do have just a few more things to say about it. But yeah, I am ready to move on, at least for now. We've got some fun stuff planned for the end of the year. Yes, fun stuff. That's what I'm talking about. Speaking of fun, some new merch is heading into the store, including an Astonishing Owl patch, finally. And the hoodie is returning in regular colors with Al on it, too. Oh, is it still uh, glow-in-the-dark? Yes. Oh, Still excellent. glow-in-the-dark, but it's not the Halloween right. color palette Right, anymore. right, right. We wanted all this stuff to be available for the holidays, so be on the lookout for it to pop up in our store in the next few days. Oh, and one other thing. Stay tuned tonight after the closing credits for a very interesting ancillary but short story from Sean Daly that is going to strike a chord with anyone who's been listening to our show for a while now. All right, let's get going. 
So what are we doing for tonight, Scott? We've been down a long, long road. We're so glad everyone survived the long, long road trip on the we, Sally House series here. We've all changed a little. We've all changed. I feel, yeah. Well, I've changed a fair yeah. amount, but I'm, I'm feeling better. Thank you for those people that actually care. You've evolved. And for those that don't, you, I don't you. Blame did you. evolve yes. a little. Yeah. Yes. But what we wanted to do with this last part of the show is, yes, we're going to talk about the EVP a little bit more, but that was the crux of part three. So that's going to be part of tonight. But we also wanted to talk about what's going on in the Sally House since the Pickmans moved out and all the ensuing investigations and other evidence, which is a lot of it is just as startling as what we got, if not more. Yeah. And, and we wanted to talk to people that had gathered that evidence. And we wanted to hear a little bit about what the Pickmans have gone through since they left the house. Well, unlike a lot of the stories we cover, this one is not over. It continues because it's not just a house. It's the people that visit it and what they're visiting there. And nobody seems to be going away. That story is not just about a family that stayed there a long time ago or a family that stayed there in the 90s. Though no one stays there now, it's continually being visited and it continually produces. There's people that go there and not much happens. They don't stay very long or very little happens. And I think in those cases, it has to do with the person and how yeah. receptive or non-receptive they are. And we'll get to that a little bit more in our conclusions tonight about why I might have been singled out, which has added another dimension to how everything worked the day we were there anyway. There's a lot of factors actually that go on. And what's funny is that I've read a lot of the reviews on Facebook for Haunted Atchison and the Sally House and the tours. And so some of the comments are from people who've taken the tour. Then they get home from their vacation, they comment on Facebook and there's a few, they're not really nasty, but it's like, man, I'm really disappointed. Nothing happened. I went through and you know, I was really excited to go and we were really expecting experience and absolutely nothing happened. And then my question to that is, what were you expecting? Did you want to get scratched? Did you want to get so scared you pooped yourself? What were you expecting? Because first of all, that's the interesting thing about this house as it relates to other haunted places, so-called, you know, Greyfriars. Yeah, there's a lot of experiences, but overall, the percentage of things that happen might be a lot lower than people expect. It's reputation, it precedes it. Well, and the other thing I'll hearken back to something that Joshua Lewis said is like, these aren't trained monkeys. Yeah. If you believe any of this at all, they're not just waiting around to do tricks for you. Right. It's a complex interaction that, as we just said a few minutes ago, has a lot of factors going into it, not the least of which is your own personal frame of mind. Well, think about this. It's like if they can kind of sense your emotions and maybe even what you're thinking and what you're saying to the person next to you or whispering even... And you get in there and you're expecting, it's like, oh boy, this is going to be so scary. And we've been waiting for this for a long time. I hope to see spinning footballs and toys going off and things flying around the room and things starting on fire and knives flying. If you were a trickster, it's like, my attitude would be like, no, you're not getting nothing. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's the trickster part of it. You going in saying like, oh, this is a bunch of hokum. There ain't nothing going to happen. It's yeah. Like, oh yeah. I want to talk about where I was at when I went in there, but we're going to save that for the end of the right. show. So let's talk about our first guest tonight. We have two interviews in the show tonight. The first guest that we want to talk to is Dr. Sean Daly, who implored us just to call him Sean, but it's difficult for me to, to drop. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that he has more degrees than a thermometer. He's a very interesting guy. He's been <laughs> yes. to school for a long time. You're going to hear him talk about that when we introduce him. But one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to him was really about this video that Maria Miller, the head of tourism, showed us when we were in the house. And she had it on her iPhone, 
And it was a video where there were some college age kids. I call them kids because I'm so much far past mm, that age right mm -hmm. now. But there were college age kids in the living room, the very same living room we were standing in. And you could see the camera was, it was inside the house and it was pointed out towards the front windows. Right. And the windows have those Levelor blinds that were super popular in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, I still got them. The Venetian blinds. Yeah, they're like yeah. real thin. They have like that wand that's like two feet long that you can turn to open or close them. And then, you know, the thin strings to pull them up and down. So what's happening is these kids are all standing in there and there's no audio on that one that I've heard anyway. But you see them just standing there and no one is near the window. And then the blinds behind them on the left-hand side, which if you were on the street facing the house, this would be the window on the right. But from inside the house, it's on the left. Right. The blinds just went from fully, like kind of perfectly flat and open, like letting light through to just shh, they closed. Like as fast as a door on the Enterprise in Star Trek. Well, pretty close. And all at once. That's the other thing that struck me. Because I have these at home, and they're not that expensive. So when you turn the rod, yes, the strings make them all turn at once, but it's not smooth, and it's not fast. Right. So my point here is that this is smooth and fast, like each one was turned individually, not like you took your finger and went from the top and the bottom, and uh, somebody did that, and you couldn't see it from the other side or out the window, whatever you're thinking, how that happened. These all turn individually and very quickly and very smoothly. And so, yes. yeah, because when I'm at home, it's like I turn them and they'll kind of turn at once, but they catch, you know. And they, yeah, they're a little clunky because the, the slats are like this thin, it's cheap thin plastic, plastic. Exactly. And they get caught on like if the strings have nubs on them or whatever. Yeah. And, they, and so you might have to yeah. fix it. Like one's left up and, you know, <laughs> you got to exactly worry about a peeping Tom. That's exactly what I was talking yeah. about. I will sometimes have to just take my hand and smooth them out. Right. Them. But that's not what happened here. No, it's weird. And so if you're thinking that somehow, as Scott always said, like you'd have to get an actuator or or somehow use gears. A servo, yeah. A I was servo. thinking like a Hollywood servo. You would have to have gone in there and installed a special effect yeah. servo that you then could trigger remotely. And even then, I don't think it would go that fast. No. You know what I'm saying? So it's freaky to look at. There's bright light. And then on top of that... Back when I first saw it, a couple of weeks ago, when yeah. I first saw it, I pulled it into, I can't remember, probably Adobe Premiere or something, and I blew it way up yeah. to look at the wand, because the wand right, is what right. turns it, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. it hangs on that little metal hook. And the wand didn't move. It, it didn't swing like a pendulum. That's what I'm saying. You couldn't tell. Now, the resolution isn't good enough to see if it's rotating because right. it's smooth. It didn't move. It didn't move. No. So the wand's not moving. The blinds just shut. And that whole group of kids is in there with... Professor Daly or Dr. Daly, and they're all there trying to see if something can happen. And this goes to that whole point of like, when you go in there to see what can happen, right. the house makes something happen. Often does, and usually. I, the other thing I will add is that when we went into the house, the day that we went, and I was still thinking that the house probably was just a musty old house that, yes, something happened in. I wasn't right. never doubted the Pikmin story because the sightings episodes are amazing. But there was a part of me that was like, well, yeah, whatever. I went over to those blinds while everyone else was looking around. I went right up to them and I looked at the wand. I put my hand up on the top. I could yeah. see there was, I just couldn't see a way that they could have surreptitiously installed some kind of thing in there and done this hoax. Right. And so it was one of those things that for me at that moment, because this was well before I'd gone upstairs and made the EVB and gotten the recordings and all right, that. I right. didn't even have the recorder yet. It was still back in the hotel. But at that moment, for me, this video that Dr. Daly got of those blinds was the craziest thing that I was personally aware of in terms of electronic evidence of something strange in that house. Yeah, I examined them personally 
and could not figure out how it could have been faked, which was the mindset I was in at that moment, which I want to come back to that mindset issue. Because when you said a few minutes ago, maybe they know what you're thinking or what's in there knows what you're thinking. If it did, it knew that at that moment I was incredulous but I couldn't wrap my head around how those blinds did that on that video. You're more of a mechanical mind, I think, like your father and, and, and much like your son. Just how does this work? What are the mechanics? And for me, when I think about that happening, yeah, I want to know what are the physics that went into making that happen? Well, it's like some kind of energy force, some kind of force. And when you say force, we talk about gravity forces out in space. That's how the strong force, the weak force, all that. It's not such a foreign weirdo concept. Some force turned each of these blades on these blinds at the same time very quickly. Oh, there's something else you're saying. See, and we had an off mic discussion a minute ago because I didn't understand what force was trying to <laughs> convey about how the blinds closed. But yeah. I, there's something that I'm seeing now that you're thinking that I hadn't thought yeah. about. I see what you're saying. Mechanically for me, I'm like the wand has to be involved. Right. But for you... And this is really fascinating to me. For you, the slats all just turned. Of course. That's how the it wand, It wasn't about the wand. No, I don't it see, was again, about. It's not the ghost of Mr. Chicken and, and yeah. you see the, the wand oh, turning and it's, it's wobbling and that's how it's done. This is a pattern that we're seeing again and again. And we're going to actually look at a few cases tonight that Taylor describes happening in the house and other places where you wonder about the physics of it. How do these things happen? What's going on here? What are the mechanics? What are the quantum mechanics that are happening? You talk about the blind, it's bypassing the rod that you twist normally as a human being would to make the strings move and to close all the blinds or open them. What's happening is that it's going right to actually flipping each of these blades like 120 blades yeah 200, all at once. 200 blades all at once at the same time very quickly you see what's interesting to me about that is it belies the difference in our perception and our level of acceptance about how something supernatural or is this paranormal or supernatural <laughs> and this this uh, is paranormal it could be either because oh, that's yeah. a, you know what i'm saying it's like the car rolling backwards well there's a scientific explanation to uh, you know gravity the mystery hills. spot yeah, yeah gravity hills and all that kind of stuff the racetrack out in the desert there where the stones move and they leave a trail and they don't know how well obviously that's a process yeah. Well, and they did figure that out. Yeah. There's a pretty good theory about it. Yeah. So that's what's fascinating to me because it gives me some insight into the differences in how you and I think and approach something. Because for me, I'm like, something must have turned that wand invisibly. And for you, it's like, you're talking about something of a much higher level of capability because the wand is like one interaction with the blinds to get them to change. To turn all the slats at the same exact moment, and there's probably 100, I don't know, 80, yeah. who knows? I'd have to guess each one's an inch, and the window's probably four feet tall, so whatever. Let's say 60 or 70 slats all at once. That is a much more omnipotent power. It's a harder stunt to pull exactly. off. It's a harder well, stunt to do it that way. Exactly. So as we've heard from Josh Lewis in part three talk about it and others, it's energy. Everything that operates, if you believe in this line of thinking, everything here requires energy. Energy, as I've always thought since high school, is the currency of the universe. Everything needs, requires, operates, functions, desires energy, including human beings and uh, those who were used to be human beings and those that were never human but operate and seem to have a consciousness to them. So here it's like it's a bigger stunt. And what you notice in the video is that it happens so fast and quickly, none of the students even notice right away. And then finally, like one turn, it's like, whoa, what? Those blinds were open. What happened? Yeah. And, and I got the sense, like I said, there's no audio, but I got the sense that 
someone behind the camera, it may be it was Sean yeah. or some other student must have said, whoa, the window's just, because then you, the person who's on the camera, the one student, she looks back at it, but she's right. not really, wait, what? Yeah. You know, and that's and then, the vibe. And, yeah, and then yeah. the other students, because some are sitting uh, cross-legged on the floor. There's one girl who's standing up. She's kind of leaning against a wall. She may have been one of the first ones to turn around, but they're like, whoa, I think something just happened. Because it's hard to wrap your head around that, even when you're kind of expecting it. So as you said, when you don't know what to expect or you're doubting something, and it happens, it's even more jarring. But I'm always curious about the people that are really expecting something. And you know, the ones who said that they were disappointed nothing happened, if something really spectacular happened, how do you deal with that as well? Because I'm wondering then, does that just change all of your thinking? Or are you just satisfied? Because often the house won't give you what you want. Sometimes the house gives you what you want, and then often the house gives you much more than you wanted. By the way, Dr. Daly shared that video with us and told us we could share it with the audience. So we have it posted on our YouTube channel, if you want to see it, of the blinds, as well as the other ones we're going to be talking about tonight that involves some activity in the nursery with a football and a couple of flashlights, which is pretty cool. So look for those on our YouTube channel, and we'll have links to them in our show notes. Anyway, so let's get to Dr. Sean Daly's interview with us from, uh, we actually recorded this a couple weeks ago, but then we have moved it down to part four of the series here. So we're going to go ahead and roll that now. My name is Sean Daly. I'm a professor of anthropology, Johnson County Community College in Overland Park, Kansas. I also direct the college's Center for American Indian Studies, and I'm the Associate Director of the American Indian Health Research and Education Alliance, not-for-profit uh, educational and medical research program that works with American Indians. Wow, that's impressive. And it, tell us a little bit about your degrees. I see you have a couple of degrees. Yeah, I have a bachelor's degree from Rutgers University in American Indian Studies and Anthropology, a master's degree from the University of Arizona in American Indian Studies, and a PhD from the University of Connecticut in cultural anthropology with a focus on U.S. federal law. Wow, that's amazing. Were you in school like the whole first half of your life? <laughs> Honestly, I started school at five and I got out of school, I think I was 30 Two or 33. Oh, my gosh. So I went straight through, but I'm going to be honest with you. I, I enjoyed it. I was doing what I wanted to do. People think when you go to all that schooling, when you're in college and postgraduate, it's nothing like high school. By the time you're done with your second year of college, you're starting to do what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, and graduate school is definitely more like an apprenticeship. So I was out there working, doing exactly what I wanted to do. So not a big deal at all. <laughs> what drew you to American Indian studies in that field? You know... I went into college with a different major, like a lot of people do, and I think it was my sophomore year of college. I took a class with a professor who had spent his adult life working with American Indians, and I, I really enjoyed the class and took another class with him. And the next thing I knew, it was like a year later, and I'm out on a reservation in Arizona tooling around. And, you know, it was one of those things that I just never looked back after that point. I just kept going with it and just let it lead me where it led me. Uh, I was fortunate enough that my wife wanted to do the exact same thing. So we did all of our schooling together from sophomore year of college, my sophomore year, her freshman year on, and we still work together. We do all of our work together today. That's great. So did you focus on a particular aspect of American Indian life and culture or with just kind of everything? 
definitely on religion. And as I got along in the studies of it, it kind of switched to religion and how religion and spirituality is affected by different laws and policies, which is why I had that focus on law school or on, on federal law for my PhD, because it's always been about how different laws, policies, you know, practices in the U.S. affect different religious traditions. And my starting point was American Indians. It's still the bulk of what I do today. But I've I have worked with other groups and other religious traditions now in that area. How on earth did someone with your background and interests find themselves looking into the Sally House in Atchison? Yeah. Okay. It's a short story. Okay. What happened was somewhere along the line, I think it was when we were, I was just starting my PhD in Connecticut. People knew I knew about religion. And so weird things would happen every now and then to people, and they would say to me, hey, you read about this stuff, you study this stuff, do you got any advice? This is going on, do you know anything about this? And so I would answer people's questions. Then it turned into, hey, something weird is going on at my house, you know about this stuff, can you come check it out? So it was never anything purposeful by any means. It kind of snowballed over the past 20 years into, you know, I have an academic interest to there's something in my house, come check it out. As for the Sally House, I teach several courses at my college on different paranormal and supernatural phenomena. One of the bread and butter courses I teach is a course called The Anthropology of the Paranormal and Supernatural. It's a semester-long course where we look at different paranormal and supernatural phenomena from different cultural perspectives from around the world. I would love to take that class. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a fun class. I always get good students in there. I love teaching it. And then since then, it snowballed into another course, cross-cultural perspectives on ghosts and hauntings, and then a course on Roman Catholic traditions on demons and exorcisms. And then I'm doing a new course in the spring, Anthropology of Religion. What happened was with that first initial course, I started taking students to different public locations to kind of do investigation, show them about the equipment, try to teach them critical thought, try to teach them, you know, you can debunk the vast majority of stuff people think is haunting. And one of the places we went early on, so this would have been about nine years ago when we started, was the Sally House. And I built up a relationship with the city of Atchison, their tourism directors who have kind of come and gone over the past few years. And I think it was about four years ago, their director at that time, a woman named Angie, said they were looking to revamp the tours they gave at the house and asked if me and some of my colleagues would want to start doing the public tours for the Sally House in like September and October. This is our fifth year doing it. So that would have been 2013. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of how we ended up doing the Sally House. I always joke with people, you know, I don't want a TV show. I don't want books. I don't want, you know, no offense. I don't want a podcast. I'm an academic. How dare you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I like being obscure. I don't like being on people's radar with this a lot. Yeah. Uh, To be honest with you, I don't have Facebook. I don't have a website. I don't have any social media. Good for you. Pretty much I do everything word of mouth and through face-to-face relationships. So long story short, that's how I ended up at the Sally House. And uh, You know, we were joking about it last weekend. We did a tour up there. I think we've done like 50 investigations in that house now. 50? Yeah, I think it's like 50 now. So we've been in there a lot over the past several years. Have you taken recording data on all of those? Uh, Yeah, we go in. We have all kinds of equipment. We have the standard, you know, night vision cameras that go back to the DVR system with the monitor. We have tape recorders. We have thermals. 
We have stuff running the whole time in the house. Be honest with you, we got so much stuff. I could probably never investigate again and still not get through all the video recordings and the audio recordings because we never get through them all. I'm probably sitting on at least three and a half years worth of stuff from that house I haven't even touched yet. I could be sitting on the holy grail of evidence and I have no clue. Wow. For what it's worth, our show, somehow this thing just germinated where we have a group of volunteers and there's 50 or 60 people, although at any given time only a dozen or maybe two dozen are active. But uh, if you ever want somebody to go through stuff and catalog it, there are people that would love nothing better than to do that. So there's just a heads up. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I might take you up on that. Like I said, it's not just the Sally House. Half the places I take my student, and we've gone, we go to big name places. Yeah. We go to Waverly. Oh, wow. We've gone to Boppy Mackey's. Uh-huh. We pretty much, if it's a big place in the center or part of the country, the class goes there. And honestly, most of that evidence doesn't get touched because what we focus on is the stuff we do in the private homes. Right. That always gets the priority. And because of that, the stuff with the class tends to take a back burner. And like I said, you know, I'm sitting on literally hundreds of hours worth of audio and video that has never been gone through. What kinds of things do you say when you're conducting the tour? Like, what is your angle on conducting a tour at the Sally House? Well, you know, Atchison has this reputation as being like this horribly haunted city. So a lot of people come in there looking for this hardcore paranormal experience. And one of the things we do with the tour is we kind of show them how the equipment works, but we also tell them what's folklore, what's truth, how to tease out evidence. Like when you watch stuff online or on the internet, you know, how to tell right away if somebody's got an agenda, if they're not presenting legitimate evidence. So we try to give them from our perspective, a more objective, as objective as possible and investigation and one that has a lot of critical thought and that skepticism to a degree, because you can't go into a place thinking it's haunted because all you're doing is a disservice to yourself and whoever's with you. That's the worst thing, in my opinion, is to go in trying to prove a place is haunted. The guys and women I work with, we all use that scientific thought where we can't prove anything, we can only disprove it. And I think part of the thing is all the people I investigate, which, and there's a group of about five of us, including myself, who we've investigated together for years, two of us have PhDs, two of them have masters. We're all in academia. We're all somehow in the science. So we really take that critical thought and that approach of being skeptical, but also open-minded. Don't get me wrong. We take that approach. So what is your impression? I mean, over the years with all those investigations, what would you say are the most significant things that seem to lead you to believe that something is is or is not going on at the Sally House? And what kind of evidence would you say stands out to you? Well, Here's the deal. There's something going on at the Sally House. In my experience, there's something going on there. Is it what the story says it is? No, I don't think that. The people I investigate with, we don't think it has anything to do with the story of Sally. That's a whole train wreck in itself. Sure. That said, we have on video objects moving with no one around. We have a football moving itself twice on command. We have blinds opening and closing themselves in the living room. We have dozen upon dozens of EVPs of intelligent responses. We've had objects thrown at us in that house. We had an object move on us two weekends ago when we were there. A toy in the child's nursery was there. We went downstairs, we're packing up, and all of a sudden it's under the chair in the dining room. 
Wow. Uh, none of us have moved it. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have seen personally and experienced a lot there. And we have quite a bit of uh, photographic, video, and audio evidence of something going on in that house. Like I said, what it is and what you're told it is, I personally think that's two different things. But there's something in that house. It's not always friendly. It's definitely not demonic. It's nothing over the top like that. We get scratched in there occasionally. We get things like that happening. But to me, that's not a big deal. That just comes with when you do this. People make a big deal out of scratches. No, that actually happens all the time. And it's not necessarily always a demonic entity or something horribly nefarious. Sometimes it's a human ghost. People can be crappy when they're alive. They can be crappy when they're dead. <laughs> so, you know, I've read several books people have written on the Sally House talking about how there's a demonic entity in there, things like that. Nothing we have ever counted in the five years we've been there would make me think demon. Nothing. Do you believe in demons and demonic entities? Oh, 100%. Okay. Uh, to be honest with you, I didn't talk about it in the beginning, but of my list of credentials, I actually consult for the Catholic Church. Okay. I've been fortunate enough to be brought in under their fold several years ago, and I've trained through the Catholic Church, and I investigate for the Catholic Church. And what I do for them is primarily demonic. So yeah, you don't got to sell me on demons. Uh, they're there. They're around us all the time, in my opinion, at least. But yeah, the Sally House, no, nothing has struck me as demonic there. So not a demon, just a dead jerk. Or multiple. See, here's what I think is going on, and the same with the group I work with. It's kind of an unregulated house. People break into that house on a regular basis. People rent that house for overnights. People do what they want to do in that house. We've gone in there after there's been overnight rentals, and you go into the basement, and people have drawn different types of, for lack of a better word, pentagrams and sigils on the ground. There's been candle magic done in the basement. There's been all different kinds of rituals done in that basement. There's video of a group that goes in there occasionally, and they'll convert the nursery into a giant Ouija board and hang pendulums from the ceiling. When you do that type of stuff, you're bringing things in and out of that house. What the Pickmans went through in that house back in the 90s, I think that's a different beast than that what's going on there now. One day we'll get a female voice on an EVP. Next week we'll get a male voice. One day it's friendly and joking. Next day it's a little ticked off. So I honestly think things come in and out of that house depending on who's there and what's been going on in that house. We always try to get a variety of guests on the show, from authors and experts in their fields to eyewitnesses and even just people we know who have an interesting perspective on what we're talking about. That's true. And we always want to plug whatever their projects are as a thank you. And what's still the easiest and best way to let everyone know how to find them so they can see what they're all about is to direct people to their website. Because everybody can get to a website, but not everyone in the audience has a social media account like Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Yeah, we see that all the time. So really the best way to let folks know what you're up to is to have a website where everyone can see everything you're doing or selling all in one place. And the best way to have your own website is to build your own with Squarespace. Absolutely. And I know that sounds daunting to most people who haven't done it, 
or especially people who've tried to build their own the old-fashioned way. But with Squarespace, building your own site is really easy. It's fun, it's affordable, and maybe most importantly, it looks really slick and beautiful. And that's because their sharp-looking templates are created by world-class designers. So you look pro without having to know anything about graphic or web design. But you can still have enough creative freedom with Squarespace to get your site just the way you want it. You have the ability to customize the look, the feel, and more with just a few clicks. So selling anything you want is a snap with their powerful e-commerce functionality. Squarespace gives you everything you need to get your ideas and products out to the world and fast, like free and secure hosting, analytics to help you grow in real time, optimization for mobile devices, and built-in search engine optimization so people can find you in the first place. And speaking of finding you, Squarespace offers a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions so you can get the URL that perfectly fits your project. So what are you waiting for? Get busy and get on the web by going to squarespace.com legends for a free trial and when you're ready to launch use the offer code legends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain once again to get your free trial go to squarespace.com legends and when you're ready to launch use the offer code legends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain make it beautiful make it stand out and make it yourself with squarespace this is Vivian, and when I'm not looking for mermaids, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Have you been a lifelong believer in this type of stuff, or were you converted by the experience of your investigations as you went through your academic career? Uh, a little of both. Uh, I was born and raised Roman Catholic, not going to lie about that. I've worked all over North America with different American Indian groups on religious issues, even done some work down in Central America. So, I mean, I've been around, I've seen this stuff. I've always believed in something out there. As for ghosts, that's something I think I came to believe in a little bit later. So in other words, believing in a God, a God as a creator, whatever you want to call him or her. Yeah, that's been a foundation of mine since I was born. And like everyone else in this world, I've struggled with it at points, not going to lie. But particularly over the past 10 years or so, yeah, I've seen too much stuff. I can't play it off and I can't come up with a good explanation for what a lot of these things I've experienced are, other than they fit the definition of what people around the world determine as a ghost or what people around the world define as a malevolent entity. And as an anthropologist, that's one of the things I'm interested in is these things, these things we call ghosts, we call demons, we call fairies, we call elementals, whatever you want to call them, these are worldwide beliefs. And cultures may define them slightly differently, discuss them a little differently, deal with them a little differently, but at their core, they're the same around the world. And to me, that's very interesting anthropologically, and that also plays a little bit into beliefs. When you got that many people believing in something, there might be something to it. Yeah. In all your investigations, have you ever seen anything similar to what you see at Sally and other, any other locations? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a local place we go to. I bring my students a lot of the same activity. So, yeah, I mean, in that respect, you know, go to Sally House, you get the flashlights turning themselves on and off. And we usually put a bunch out. We use like yes, no flashlights. We'll get yes responses, no responses. So, I mean, we get the flashlight play. We get the K2 play. We get the REM pods, the mel meters. We get all that typical equipment you will see on the TV shows acting at the Sally House. 
like they will at other locations. The quality of the EVPs we get from the Sally House, for the most part, we get nice, clear ones, but we get them at other places. The scratches we get there are no different than the scratches we've gotten other places. The one thing I must say might be a little different about the Sally House is, you know, you go to some places and you never know if it's going to be on that night. They're not performers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go in and you're, you're hoping to have a good night, but you never know. Honestly, there's something that happens every time you go to the Sally House. That place is consistently active. So that's what I would say might, in my opinion, be one of the things that sets it apart is no matter when you go there, something's going to happen. It may not be over the top, like a football rolling, but something's going to happen that night. You're going to get some form of activity. It's that balancing act of how do you do this? Be respectful to the entities, but also actually teach someone something and get them out of that mindset of what they see on TV all the time. Because the reality is, and again, you've done these, what you see on TV is nothing like how these things are in real life. They take two nights worth of recordings and jam it into an hour show. They have 50 million cameras going, and so they can make it a little bit more entertaining. The reality is sitting in a house overnight for eight hours talking to flashlights is weird. Yeah. And, you know, that's what it is. Sometimes you'll spend eight hours, and if you get 30 seconds of activity, you got lucky. But people expect these instant results when they walk into these houses, and that's when they provoke. That's when they start to push the envelope. And you don't need to do that because, again, you don't always know what you're dealing with. Yeah. What would you say to people that say this, well, this is all a bunch of hooey. You're imagining things. The football rolled because somebody blew on it and you couldn't tell. Or honestly, I've seen the blinds footage. I don't know how you would explain that short of someone installing a servo in the blinds. What do you say to people who think it's a hoax or that you're mistaken, that this can't be real? I don't say anything. That's not my job. I don't believe it's my job to convert people one way or another. I'll present you with what I find. What you make of it is up to you. I know what I know. I know what I experienced. But to be honest with you, I don't want to get in a pissing match with people over that because you can't convince people if they don't want to be convinced. Just like I can't convince people who are firmly believing their house is haunted when it's an electrical problem. Yeah. No, seriously, we've had that happen to us. If you want your house to be haunted that bad, I can show you 20 reasons why it's the electrical panel in your basement doing stupid stuff. But if you're not going to believe me, you're not going to believe me. And the same goes with the skeptics. I can show you evidence, but until it happens to them, if it ever happens to them, they're not going to believe me. So here's what I have. Take it or leave it. That's completely your choice. That's my attitude with my students, too. These are what people believe. This is what I've believed. This is what I've experienced. I'm not trying to convert you, though. You want to believe it? Great. You don't? That's your right, too. That's not my thing. And again, I I don't think that's something I want to get involved in. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Have any of your students, after experiencing some of the stuff that they've seen, have any of them, you know, on your investigations? I mean, I've only seen the evidence from the Sally ones, but I'm sure other ones as well. Like, has it completely upset the apple cart for them in terms of what they believe once they actually have witnessed something? To be honest with you, yeah, I've had a couple students who at the start of the semester, when we're doing icebreaker questions and things like that, they'll identify as either atheist or agnostic, and they're definitely rethinking that by the end of the course Uh because they've gone in, they've seen things, and they've experienced things in some of these locations that they can't explain what their current belief system and worldview, so it does make them question things. But you've never heard that kind of yelling, like enraged screaming or anything at Sally or anywhere else? 
No, no, okay. not a yelling, enraged yelling. I've had things curse at us. I've had things yell at us to get out, things like that. But what you're talking about without actually hearing it, I can't remember of anything like an enraged yelling. No, I've had things yell, get out. Like I said, we've been cursed at 50 million times by things, but nothing that ever was off-putting or anything like that, okay. just typical yelling and cursing. We've not had those negative experiences other people have talked about there, and I don't know what it is. Maybe there is something there that we've just never encountered, but I would think in 50-plus investigations there, something would have showed its face. Yeah, and I, I went once, mind you, and I'm not going back, and I was there an hour and a half maybe. And also, I've never really gotten – I don't even know what I'm – I was complete rank amateur. We only had just kind of learned protocol for getting an EVP. Unless something was there messing with you, knew you were a newbie, yeah. thought it'd be funny to mess with you, and they do that. And that's happened. I mean, it could be something just messing with you. But regardless, the fact that it you know had that impact on you, that's not cool. Maria's right. Historically, I never do this stuff, and it's not that I – I, I always tell people this. I don't want to be lumped in with a certain group of people that do this. If, that, if, I, if you know what I'm saying, I'm yeah. not trying to throw anyone under the bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people who just often have a certain persona, a certain swagger, <laughs> I, I don't want to be lumped in with that. Right. So I've historically been hesitant to do things. In the past two weeks, I got hit up by two podcasts, a museum, and a video documentary company yeah. about the Sally House. Yeah. I'm going to be selective, and that's how I'm going to do it going forward. Maybe I do need to open my mouth up every now and then, but I'm just going to be selective. And I know Maria loves you guys. I asked a couple of colleagues about you guys who know about podcasts, and you know it was all favorable. So I'm like, yeah, oh, good. I can do that. Well, thank you so, very, very much. This has been a great pleasure. I know you need to get going. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Sean. And I hope that we can reach out to you and have you on the show again in the future if you're up for it to talk about more Native American-oriented stuff. Because after this show series gets done, I'm not going to be talking about what I experienced at the Sally House anymore. I'm ready to be done with it. It got you that good, huh? Yeah. You know, and you're not the first. I've had people tell me that, that they will never, ever go back to that place. And like I said, I've just never, never encountered it. So I'm glad either something's playing coy with me and avoiding us or waiting to jump on us when the time's right. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry that happened to you. I don't wish that on anybody, be it at the Sally House or any other place, stuff like that. It's unpleasant. I wanted to go out on him saying that my experience was unpleasant because I, I think that's a good word for it. Unpleasant. <laughs> It was more than unpleasant for you, my friend. I've seen you uh, at a restaurant feeling unpleasant, and uh, you were rattled, like, to your core. So. Yeah, it's... um. I it's, mean, quietly, like, you just look shell-shocked. Well, you know, it's, I think, strange for me... By the way, just want to thank him so much for coming on the show. I know we just said that, but I uh, really appreciate him coming on the show because it, it lent a, a new perspective to the big picture of that house. But I think what's interesting to me, too, is as many investigations as he's done there, he's never stumbled across anything like what I stumbled across. And that is, again, that's going to come up in the conclusions here when we get yeah. to the end of tonight's show about what you're expecting and what you're looking for. Yeah. But he's gotten some amazing evidence. His video evidence is really fascinating to me. And those, he also has that crazy footage of this football rolling around. The students are all in the nursery right, there. Right. And they actually say, this one has audio, you know, can you move the football? And then the football moves, and then it moves back, and then it moves again, and then the flashlight's turning on and off. And on top of that, 
that footage has a bunch of orbs in it. And everyone knows that I, I, <laughs> you, you know, hate orbs. I, no, I, you know, I make fun of he orbs or I have, orbs. well, yeah. I mean, in still photos, I think, yeah, nine times out of 10, it's dust on the lens well, or, we a, don't know. or a lens yeah. flare, but yeah. I'm starting to recognize the orbs that maybe are different because, and of course, this is the funny thing. Was yeah. after he sent us the football and flashlight video, I was like, "Wait, did you see those little like orbs flying around? Like right before the football moves, you'll yeah. see them." And uh, he goes, "We discount that kind of thing." And I was just like, "Now I'm the guy <laughs> trying to convince someone else that the orbs are real." Right? Yeah. And it's like, what's happening to me? Uh, well, but again, you you have your own set of parameters, you personally, and also uh, I think other investigators. It's movement. It's yeah. like we've all looked at a shaft of sunlight coming in and you can see the dust in the air and the air currents moving those around. And and a lot of times in photographs, that's what you're seeing, I believe. Yeah. Uh, in a digital photograph especially, those out of focus or with a flash can show up as orbs. And I've blown them up. Actually, a guy I work with, uh, he had a pretty good shot. Early on, he knew I was doing this podcast. We hadn't done many of them yet, but he was like, what is this? He, he blew it up, he printed them out. And it's a bit of pareidolia, but you can see faces in them. And I can understand why he was like, what is this? And, you know, look, it, it was in a room. Faces. Yeah, it was in a room that it had had some construction in it. So there was dust, but he wasn't kicking up any of it. He'd just gone in to actually take a photo to document it for the real estate company. So I wasn't moving around. I just kind of opened the door and just poked my head in and took a picture. And then I noticed later, it's like I get these weird orbs, these circles. And they looked like they have designs in them. And he blew that up and it looks freaky. But the videos that Dr. Sean has collected are amazing. Because again, I, I think about the scene in Poltergeist when Craig T. Nelson has just had so much experience that his family's exhausted. And they finally call in that paranormal team. And, and the one guy goes, uh, yeah, we had this incredible footage, this toy. I mean, it was time-lapse, but it moved over seven inches over several hours. And it's like, oh, yeah? yeah. And then he opens the door, and we talk, you know, yeah. and things are flying around, and, and the little rocking horse is, is flying through midair. Again, that's uh, Hollywood, and that's dramatic, and those weird kind of things happen, not to that degree, it seems. But you look at video like this, and it's like, wow, that is pretty convincing. And the other thing I wanted to say about that is... Something that we're going to talk about tonight in some of the theories that have been brought up to us by listeners so far and friends and people who are familiar now with the story. If it's any kind of other outside stimulus, I would expect more randomness. But in the case of the football, when you ask, can you move one of these toys or can you spin the football and then the football moves, that's context to me. It's the same thing that you know people say about the flashlight test. It's like, well, it's heating up, it's cooling down, and the light comes on and it goes off as you know as the temperature rises and cools down again. It's just the contacts. That's contraction and expansion. Yes, but then I would expect more rhythm to it. Not that it's kind of answering questions that only you know and the spirit you're trying to communicate knows. It's context to me. So that to me means there's something else going on here. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And it, I want to comment on that. When it gets to that point where it's that specific, that context, whether it's an EVP is an answer to a question or a football moves after you say move the football, at that point, it is one of two things. It is either a hoax. Right. Yeah. Or it's real. And then or, there's an, or an incredible coincidence. Yeah. Or there's you the know. infinitesimal chance that the football rolled over right when they said football roll over. Or can you move this football? Yeah, so yeah. that's the part of all that that's fascinating to me because at that point, so then it's like, okay, now 
Well, let's say it's a hoax. What if it's a, he's doing a, a sociology experiment and he's compiling all this footage and he goes in there with all these students and they're hoaxing right. us with the blinds and the flashlight and the football. And then what's going to happen is five years from now or 10 years from now, Sean is going to write a groundbreaking paper on how he and his students convinced <laughs> everyone that Sally House was possessed. You well, know? that was a huge story. The Amazing Randy and some grad students, I believe, and hoaxers and uh, people who are good with uh, just natural magic fooled a bunch of researchers that's a whole other story yeah and by the way i'm not casting aspersions on sean at all or implying that that's oh, no, what's no, happening no, you're joking i am I just that, talking yeah. about probabilities of and like you said the context around this situation so when talking about context as we're doing here and it's either a football or it's a light blinking off and on on a flashlight or whatever it is or it's uh, dowsing rods whatever the form of communication is an SB7 spirit box, a ghost box, whatever it is. And in the case with us and this EVP, probably the largest argument that it is not something beyond our world is that it is interference from a transmission of some kind coming over the air, either a radio station nearby or it's ham radio, or it sounds like shortwave being uh, tuned in, or it's a CB nearby from the interstate and it's a trucker. Okay, to reiterate, we talked to three ham radio experts at a store, and they, these are older guys that have been selling these things for 25, 30 years, have heard everything. We've said this in part three. I grew up listening to shortwave with my dad, and, and we weren't ham radio operators, but shortwave, you get a lot of the same communication. That type of radio chatter specifically, that and CB. And of course, have spent a lifetime listening to AM stations, FM stations, music stations, and now streaming, everything you can think of, I've heard years of it. And what I'm getting at is that with these EVPs, if they were some kind of interference from a radio, and what people are noticing is that it does sound like words. Most of our responses that we're getting are that people are identifying words in there. Now, they may not all agree what the words are, but a lot of responses, like I said, are that there are words in there. Okay, so if it's a transmission and it's a radio station or it's radio chatter, I expect more consistency, not words coming through that seem to answer our questions that we're asking. Yeah, or match the cadence of that, of a question and answer session. Exactly. It's like, you ever heard talk radio that sounds like that? I've heard plenty of interference coming over the radio on a long road trip going through the canyons, and it drifts in and out. For me, this is a dead topic because the ham guys said it wasn't radio interference. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. so that's in there. As, as far it's as like, spinning tires at the Yeah, moment. no, as far as RF, that's what I'm saying. But in looking at it as something more than that, what gives this weight for me is that questions are being asked and answers are being given. And the range of words that are being heard are giving this context much more than the randomness of an errant broadcast. Yeah, we're going to have a little more to say about our EVP at the end of the show and our conclusions. But here's the thing about our EVP and Dr. Daly's videos that he shot and all the evidence that he said in his own interview he's accumulated and doesn't even have time to go through. And I am going to reach out to him again about maybe seeing if our team can start to work on that. It might take a long time, but right, right. Uh, we got a lot of folks who are twiddling their thumbs between projects and hungry for stuff to do. And I think they would enjoy cataloging that stuff. I could be wrong. I'm speaking out of turn. I haven't asked the research core yet if they want to do this kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for loading that on them. <laughs> free search. It's already free search. Uh, now it's going to be free archiving. It doesn't work. But anyway, there's more evidence than just that. And there's more things still going on. So now we're going to move away from the academic viewpoint that we just got and go back over to 
the experiences that the Pickman family is continuing to have to this day, even though they've been out of that house for decades, there's things that are still going on that are really, really fascinating. And that's why we felt so fortunate to get an interview with Taylor Pickman, who, as we said at the top of the show, is the little baby in a diaper <laughs> yeah, right. in the sightings videos when they went and interviewed his parents using the, everyone had pseudonyms, but using, we's using code names when they were. <laughs> well, there, he was a toddler at the time. Yeah, he's yes. very cute. It was funny is that you can see him wandering among the crew of the sightings team and they're kind of patting him on the head and there's a bunch of people, a bunch of adults in my living room and he's just kind of having fun there. Yeah. And now not only is he grown up, but his significant other, Brennan, is a fan of the show and yeah. has been listening for a long time before we even got to Atchison. So, and no, we, that was another strange connection Yeah, uh, that may have had a lot of meaning to it. Yeah. She may have been sent to us. And, How about that? And, and, <laughs> and talk about context, because what Taylor's going to talk about is they're experiencing to this day plenty of context within this ongoing story. Now, as you will see, it may not all make sense or be part of a continuous, understandable narrative, but everything that happens there is part of this context. So pay close attention because you're going to hear some things that will just bend your mind and chill you to the core. Welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. I don't even know where to start. The story is kind of overwhelming. I'm not sure how your family has even dealt with it. But I guess the thing I would start with is we directed our listeners to the YouTube channel with the sighting. It has all three of the sightings, or I think it's two or three versions of the sightings episodes strung together. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. You're in that as, as a, a very young baby, just a couple months old. I don't even remember what name they called me. Oh, yes, there was a fake name. I wrote it down somewhere. I don't have it either, actually. Uh, we laugh every time we watch the old episodes because they call my dad Jeff. Yes, and it Jeff. Just do you still live in Atchison? I do not still live in Atchison. Okay. I've since moved out into Lawrence. Okay. Uh, home of the Supernatural Brothers. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's another very haunted town, isn't it? Yes. There's a lot of activity here, too. Okay. Um, how far away is that from Atchison for our listeners? 45 minutes to an hour. So how long ago did you move out of Atchison? Let's see. It would have been, I want to say about eight years now. Okay. Uh, sophomore year college. Okay. Gotcha. What do you do? Are you If you're comfortable sharing that with our audience. I work at a makerspace in Kansas City. It's kind of a interesting thing to explain, but among other things, we work kind of like a gym for people who make stuff. Oh, so cool. oh, yeah. you need yeah. tools, you pay a $65 <laughs> fee every month and you have access to every tool under the sun oh that's cool and then i do a lot of small batch manufacturing and prototyping for different companies and marketing firms and the like oh cool that's fascinating you like your work i love it that's the catch these days it's finding something that you want to do yeah let's just go chronologically we know you've heard your parents interview and you had some things you wanted to point out about life after that what's your earliest memories what's it been like growing up with this in this scenario i mean we've made it clear your parents have moved out of the house but they're actually not too far away seems like based on their interview they're still experiencing some stuff you seem like you wanted to add to that and go with the flow whatever you want to share with us or our audience about your experience with the Sally house and growing up in the Pickman family. I'll try and keep it chronological, but in all honesty, there's just so much that you lose track of what happened when. So you don't remember much about living in the actual house. I think I have one memory of a Christmas there, but it has nothing to do with paranormal anything. That's about all I remember that house while I lived there. 
I don't think I was even out of the crib until after we left that house. <laughs> so you you grew up in the other house? Yes. I think some of the first stuff is some of the most more common stuff. One of the earliest things I remember happening among investigators coming over, listening to EVP, that sort of thing, was items going missing from the house. We had a lot of that. And not from the Sally house, not usually, but from our house, the house that my parents now own and the house that I grew up in. Things going missing, that's normally not a big deal. You lose stuff, you misplace stuff, it shows up weeks or months later. You assume, okay, I misplaced that and left it somewhere. But this started getting weird. And by weird, I mean the stuff would show up in places there was no way for it to show up. Places like we had the TV remote go missing for two months and it reappeared, not at our house, but at the Sally house. And when it reappeared, it was melted, almost like someone had taken it and under high heat twisted it. I saw that picture. You shared that photo with us. So you're saying that remote, I didn't understand this, though, until just now, because we, we had a conversation off the air before we started the interview. But that remote that you sent, the melted remote, that remote actually went from your parents' current house back over to the Sally house. It went missing, and then it turned up over there, melted. Yes, and we had all sorts of that stuff happen. We had cell phones that would disappear, and they'd be gone for months. And the whole time they're gone, and these are your old cell phones. They had a battery life of maybe a day. But the whole time they would be missing, we would be getting texts and photographs from them that were black screens or audio files with clicking in them. Really? At one point, we got a text message from one of those phones that contained characters that, to this day, we don't know how they showed up because they weren't programmed into the phone. This was before emojis, and all of a sudden, there was a pentagram texted to us, and we were just ungodly confused. Were they other symbols like a pentagram? Were they recognizable or was it garbled digits? But Some of it was, was it... garbled digits and kind of like when you open a computer document in the wrong program. Some of it was Correct. that, but mixed in, you'd have things like a pentagram or a devil's image with horns or something like that. And it was very strange. Wow. How far away was your house, the house you grew up in, from the Sally house, like how far did that remote and that melted pen travel? It was about a mile. And the cell phones, they would turn back up in your house after being missing, or did they just vanish permanently? Or Sometimes they would turn back up in the house that they disappeared from. Sometimes they would turn back up in the Sally house. And anything that came back was always melted, always to some degree. There's an image of a pen that was taken and when it reappeared it was melted with almost fingerprints into it were people living in the sally house when this stuff was turning up over there usually not usually they were found by investigators but less has continued to rent the house over the years and i suppose that brings me to another story that is less connected to us as the pikmins and more connected to just the house in general if you believe any of this. <laughs> well done. Uh, 
back in middle school, we had a teacher. He was one of the nicest guys we knew. And I'll neglect saying his name in case he doesn't want to be talked about. But we had a teacher who was middle school teacher, great guy. He ran the women's volleyball team, that sort of thing. And he happened to fall on hard luck at one point and Les let him move into that house for about two months during the summer. And I think he stayed essentially rent-free. When he came back, he wasn't quite right. He was a lot quieter, a lot mousier, almost like he was afraid of things. And the oddest thing was that about halfway into the semester, he left his uh, volleyball team a note and told the girls he was leaving and not to look for him. And he took all the money that had been set aside for the volleyball team and just disappeared. No one's really heard from him since. And I don't know whether that's connected to the house or not, but that's the sort of thing, the odd things that just sort of followed any interaction I've ever seen with that house. You guys don't know where he went to this day? You still don't know where he is or where he went? No. There's a lot of rumors he went down to Mexico, but there's always rumors people go down to Mexico. Yeah. R- right. But but he uh, he basically embezzled the money or, or absconded with it and just took off, and that's the last anybody has seen or heard of him. Yes. Was it a lot of wow. money? It was a couple hundred dollars, I think. It's just not even that much, really. Just enough to get him immediately out of town, probably. Yeah. Uh, and what did he teach at the high school? He taught social studies, and I think he was one of the history teachers. Mm-hmm. Do you think that his uh, departure uh, could have just been related to whatever hard times he had been having, and that was, uh, if you would ascribe it to that, or do you you think that it it absolutely could have been related to hard times? It's just that's the thing about the house with every interaction with that house, there's stuff that occurs that under any normal situation or taken by itself, there's things that are completely explainable. There's plenty of unexplainable too, but what always gets me is the things that are explainable, but just in the quantity and timing of them, you wouldn't expect by any matter of statistics for them to occur like that. Okay. So what other kinds of stories can you tell us about that? Well, I think one of the ones that my parents mentioned when they were on the radio just near the end was the knife that went flying. Yes. Uh, And this was in my parents' current house, not the Sally house. And when I preface this, I preface it with the knowledge that that house is kind of shotgun style. You can go from the kitchen into the living room through the dining room, and it's about 25 to 40 feet of distance, depending on where you start. Mm -hmm. We had a kitchen knife, and I think I sent you guys a picture of it, a large butcher's knife, basically, that went flying across the room and nicked my dad either on the shirt or on the cheek. I believe it was the cheek. And it damn near stuck into the wall. And he had said in his interview that that was during a visit to the house by particularly aggressive investigators, or it was a simultaneous event. 
that was one of the things that really started to pick up and we started to correlate a little after my parents started doing investigations. There was a point where they decided investigating here isn't a good thing. We were having a lot of stuff happen and we tried to separate and stop going to the house. But anytime we had investigators over at the house and most frequently than when they were being belligerent or violent with the spirits, when they were trying to get something to happen, something would happen back at our house. We had the knife thrown. The sort of infamous one among my family is my dad catching on fire. I cannot tell you how many times growing up that my dad would just be sitting in a chair napping or doing this or that or nothing in particular. And all of a sudden, his arm would be on fire or an area just above his heart would be on fire. And it would burn through his shirt. It would burn the hair off his arms. It never burned him. So it was his clothes that were catching on fire technically. And then, but it would, it would. No, it wasn't. It was not his clothes because sometimes he'd be wearing short sleeve shirt and the lower part of his arm that wasn't covered by anything would be on fire. Oh. Yeah, so you're saying that he was kind of emanating fire, that the fire was not actually, it's not like his skin was the fuel for the fire. It was kind of just maybe just above the skin. It wouldn't burn yes. him, but would burn the clothes, would start the clothes on fire. But if there if was, was no clothes there, it would just be like fire in the air above his skin. Yes. Did you see this happen yourself? Oh, more times than I can count. It's really funny when we have company over and it happens because all of us kids are just so used to it. It's like, mom, dad's on fire again. And, and my mom would just come out with the extinguisher and everybody else is just freaking out. And I think that's kind of the gist of how I grew up. To a lot of people, the craziness that we went through with that house and still go through relatively frequently is just beyond reason. It's insane. It's how could you ever live there? How could you live with that? But the thing is, I grew up with that. I've been embroiled with it since as far back as I can remember. And it kind of gives me an odd viewpoint because things that should be strange and terrifying just, no, that's Tuesday. Do you feel like in terms of being used to it, and living with it, which you obviously have done and, and your parents have done too, do you feel like that diffuses it at all? Because it's just, you know what, this is what happens here. And uh, we know that it's not going to cause real permanent physical harm. So we're just living with it. Or, or is there still that fear of not really knowing what it is? Or how do you quantify the events and how do you? There's definitely a level of it normalizes it. It doesn't really take away the fear of what could happen because yeah, my dad lights on fire and we catch it and sure, that's normal. But my dad's still catching on fire and even if it doesn't burn him, if that happens while he's up, up asleep in bed like it did one night, all of a sudden the bed's on fire. What color is the flame generally? Does it like a, um, a gas flame? It's normally flame? just the color of a normal candle flame, like your yellow, orange, red. Yellow, or okay, okay. So nothing like that. 
do you notice at your residence now activity spiking when there are investigations going at the Sally House that might be particularly aggressive? I don't notice it when there's an investigation going on, but that might just be because I don't personally keep up with when there's an investigation going on. But whenever we get to talking about the house, something inevitably happens. Just getting ready for this interview this morning, as we're waiting for some files to sync, my power went out. It just flickered for a minute. And that's never happened in this apartment. <laughs> hmm. What's the typical type of activity do you see most often at your place now? It would be things going missing or electrical kind of anomalies? Things going missing, uh, items being knocked off shelves when there's nowhere and no one anywhere near that. You'll hear something fall or crash in the other room and all of a sudden there's a picture on the wall. Wait, this floor. is this is happening at your apartment in addition to their house or just in their at their house? Both. It happens at your apartment as well. Yeah. And you're 45 minutes away. Yeah. Have you had any physical attacks like your father? Has anything like that ever happened to you? Uh, nothing that I could 100% quantify. It's definitely one of those things that the more you feed it, the more attention you give it, the more it's able to do. I think that's why we get so much activity at my parents' place when there's an aggressive group at the house because they're there feeding it, they're pouring emotional energy into it or whatever you want to call it, and it causes activity to swell up back at my parents' place because, dear God, it's always after my dad. What do you think is the relationship there between, like, yourself, you know, as an infant starting off and and between your dad and what are your specific impressions about what this thing or things want from you, your your mom, your dad, yourself? There's been a lot of theories. We've had people tell my dad that he's the reincarnation of the angel Michael and that it's a demon lord that lives in the house and is trying to kill him. But we've also had stuff where it's a, no, you look like Charles Finney or the like. We really don't know why it attaches to my dad, but it does always seem to attach most strongly to my dad. I get some activity. My mom occasionally gets something here or there, but it's always centered around my dad or around various investigators who go to the house, challenge it or something, and then... Two months later, six months later, something terrible and unexplained happens to them. There's a couple relatively recently, I think in the past year or two, and anybody who's in the paranormal field probably will know who I'm talking about. They were a very sweet couple that investigated together. And my parents knew them well, and they went to the Gettysburg Convention with my parents and, and such every year. Is this uh, an older couple? Not an older couple. Okay. It's not Lorraine and Okay, Ed. okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's the couple that very recently, the woman died in a domestic abuse incident. The husband just kind of turned on the flip of a dime. Oh, geez. All of a sudden, he was a completely different person. And I know my dad talked about that while we were in the house, but that's something I got to stress. That doesn't necessarily end with the house. My dad's generally avoided it at this point. 
but I've seen it happen so many times with my mom, with investigators that we've known well over the house, where they'll go to the house and they get back and they're just different. Uh-huh. Or people who have been investigating at the house, all of a sudden, two months later, their personality just changes. And sometimes it's only for a few hours or a few days, but I've also seen it last longer. There is something very dark in that house. And from the several hundreds of EVPs I've listened to over the years, from discussions with other investigators, from things that have happened to me and my family personally, the sense that a lot of times we get is that there's something evil in that house and it collects. It collects spirits that may have been passing through. It collects the spirits of people who die in and around the house and it feeds off them and then it uses them. We don't have any evidence of an actual Sally ever having been there, but there's evidence of a number of young girls, I believe, that have a tie to that house who died young. And elements of each of them have appeared here and there in evidence that is often attributed to Sally. The idea that there's something there that draws in, it wants to be seen, it wants to be talked about, it wants to be fed, basically. And why it attached to my dad and became so aggravated or attacked him so much, I don't think we've had a perfect theory yet. I don't think we've had a really good one. Tess was wondering, she got the sense that there's something there perhaps at the house, especially during you know the time you were an infant, that was maybe somewhat protective. And if you, going back as an adult, if you had any sense of that, there's interactions with you, of course, but that something feels more protective than aggressive or threatening towards you. My first couple investigations there, I very much felt a lot of child spirits. When I say felt, it's just kind of a... You get a sense that something's there, and Mm -hmm. it felt childlike. But the more time I spent there, the more that faded, and the more it just became oppressive and dark. There were days I couldn't walk past the front step. Right. Wow. Is that kind of the feeling that you get now, in general, going back to the house? I get that feeling even just looking at pictures or video of the house. But at the same time, and it's the weirdest thing, no matter how uneasy the house makes you feel, there's always that draw that you have no reason to go back, but you want to go back. Right. That's something your dad had explained and described, that you don't necessarily feel great there. You don't have the the best of times. Strange things are happening, but you feel compelled to revisit it. It has a pull on you. We've had people feel that from across the country. I think we've got a friend, Dan, who's a psychic in and around your area that Mm -hmm. has been in the house and he gets that same urge on a regular basis. So Taylor, earlier in our series, we talked about that story about the pentagram in the basement. I wanted to hear a little bit about your particular perspective on that story. What can you tell us about what you know about the woman and also specifically 
the pentagram and that and the photo that has the sigil that is related to Raziel on the floor in the basement of the house. When my parents first started going back to the house for investigations, this was one of the first things that we got photos of. And basically after we moved out, I don't know if it was the tenant right after us or one of the later ones, there was a woman who moved in and she didn't like Les going down to the basement. And finally he got fed up with it and he went down there. He, he found a pentagram and a bunch of what he called devil worshiping stuff and the like. And he kicked her out on the spot. And of course, the first thing he did once she was out of there was he cleaned it all up. He tried scrubbing the pentagram. He's tried painting over it. He tried a bunch of different stuff. And so it was pretty well gone by the time that my parents got back in there to investigate. But there was still traces where you could see where it had been. And they happened to have a demonologist with them at one point when they were in there. And he came in with chalk. And the pentagram that you see and the symbols around that directly are what was originally spray painted down there. What the woman had drawn. Or as best as he could approximate. It was familiar to him. It was. Okay. Now, the circle below... I believe was a protection sigil that he put down when he started tracing it. Wow. Could we get in touch with this guy? Would he, do you think he would talk to us? Possibly. You'd have to talk to my parents. Okay. I don't even remember his name. Okay. There's right. been so many investigators. I think my parents alone have been a part of five or six investigative groups with names <laughs> that yeah. been over there on a regular basis. So so to explain that, that image again, the black smudging, that's what Les tried to paint over? Is that Les Either what doing? he tried to paint over or what he tried to clean up. So basically, yeah, to, if you looked at the image, and if we do ever uh, post this, the beige kind of chalk looking, what's drawn in chalk over the black smudging is done by the demonologist. And that is a, I recognize similar things to that, the name of an angel or spirit and a protective sigil, uh, because it looks a lot like stuff you would find in a grimoire. Yeah, that, I that is Enochian. Yeah. Enochian, okay. That is new. So the demonologist wrote over that, but he could tell what the black smudging was trying to cover up or what had been there originally. Yes. Okay. And what are the papers that are surrounding that on the floor? I'll be entirely honest. I couldn't tell you. I wasn't actually there for that investigation. Uh, okay. In looking at them, it looks to me like reference work, like maybe he was looking stuff up and referencing. Oh, well. It, yeah, it looks yeah. like he's trying to well, decode stuff. And he had paper, those yeah. papers are like his notes or or he had printed out like some kind of thing that he brought as a guide to try and decipher what was going on. Because it looks to me like on the papers, you can see maybe other sigils or and symbols and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I see that now. Do you know what's in the center of the pentagram? I don't, but my parents would. Another question. So, because that's one really interesting aspect of the story, I think, after, you know, your family had moved out, is this woman coming in who may have been married with a child or a couple of kids and was trying to do these things in the basement in some kind of spirit work. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions around it and, and you know, exaggerations. From what you know, because I've heard basically two theories now that, yes, it seems like she really was trying to do something spiritual, 
related to magic or the practice of, uh, you know, some kind of pagan spirit work down in the basement. But the two theories are either she was trying to do good in protecting the house or trying to contain these spirits or mediate them in a positive way, or she was had rented the house and was living there because she wanted to capitalize on the negative or dark or evil spirits there. Do you know which side of those two arguments do you land on? I land on the second. Part of that is based on sort of what that demonologist who traced the pentagram told us based on what that sigil and that pentagram from what he could decipher was for, that it was not for protection or anything like that. You and perhaps the demonologist think that she was using the house to conjure something bad, to use the negative energy there in a not positive way. I believe so. Based on what the demonologist said, based on partially the fact that she has actively refused any discussion of it and gets in fights with my parents anytime it's brought up, because I think they've tried to contact her once or twice. And also based on the fact that around the time she first was living there is around the time, I think, that activity started picking back up at our house. Hmm, interesting. Raziel, if I'm saying it right, is an archangel within the teachings of Jewish mysticism, of the Kabbalah of Judaism, who is the, quote, keeper of secrets and the, quote, angel of mysteries. He is associated with the Sephira Chokma, the second of ten in Bariah, one of the four worlds of Kabbalistic theory. Hmm. So that would be the protection part of the image. Yeah. And then, Taylor, you, you said this had to do with a certain type of magic. I think I, I didn't hear it clearly or cut out. Oh, so the pentagram itself and the symbols immediately surrounding that are what were there. The circle and possibly the name Raziel, but I'm not sure, mm-hmm. that is below that in the image are what was put there by the demonologist supposedly as a protection. And just looking at it, I recognize the way it's laid out as Enochian, which was this whole thing back in the Victorian era with some guy who believed he he was speaking to angels and was using math and these different symbols to write spells and supposedly conjure beings. And I don't know how much credence I give to that, but that's what that looks like to me just from the study that I've done into what that was. There's one audio file in particular that is very stark where they're having a conversation because that's the way my aunt liked to do it was we would just have a conversation in the room and ignore the spirits and they'd inevitably start talking about other things or responding to our conversation in as if they're in the same room. Yeah. Um, And I think at the time we were having a conversation about what happens to someone if they die in the house or what happens to their soul or whatever. And there's a voice that comes in that just screams, swallow your soul. This is a story you'll have to talk to my mom about at some point because she was the one there and she's the one who can give the best description of it. But I can give you what I have secondhand and hopefully that'll spark you. 
So there was one investigation she was over there. I forget who she was with, but there was an investigator who had brought one of the original Frank's boxes. Because originally it was this thing that he had designed and he put the plans up online and you could build your own. And he had done that. Yes. And she had access to this Frank's box and they were sitting there and she was holding real time this full conversation with an entity. And she describes it as there was a distinct voice and she describes it as that dark, overbearing, angry voice that we've been talking about. Uh-huh. And at one point it started talking about my dad and laughing and saying, look at that, I've already got him. He's dying right now. My mom didn't find out until about two hours later when she got a call from the hospital. My dad, while that I'll call it an interview with the Frank's box voice was going. My dad works at a grain elevator and there had been a collapse within the grain bin or the grain silo that he was in. And he was buried and suffocating at that time. Oh my God. Now my mom is pretty sure that this was whatever that entity is taking credit for something, not actually causing it. But even just the idea that it knew is terrifying. But that's a story yeah. you'll have to talk to my mom about more. You guys, <laughs> we can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us, Taylor. We really, really appreciate it, man. And you've been really fantastic. In fact, we, we love both your mom and dad, and, and we'd love to come back to Atchison just to hang out. If I mean, you get can... the chance, you should definitely stop in and hang out with them for a night because. You'll get all kinds of stuff. You will probably see my dad get scratched. The, I'm 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 a little concerned that it's wanting me to come back. So I'm a, I can't figure out if I want if I'm wanting to go back on my own or if I'm being tricked into feeling that way. If you go back to the house, that can be a problem. If you go back to Atchison, you should be fine. Okay. Because it's got no less power where you are now than it does just generally in Atchison. And that's a scary thing to think about. But we've had people on the other side of the country where they pissed it off and all of a sudden, like, their brakes stopped working on the way home and like that. It's the Annabelle situation. Yeah. So I'm just glad you didn't challenge it. No, I wasn't interested in that. That's not my style. <laughs> not my style at all. If you're looking for the voices of small children and conversation between spirits, it'll give you that. If you're looking for evidence of some terrible demon or someone was murdered here, it'll give you that. It'll give you what you're looking for, and it'll keep giving it to you, and it'll keep giving it to you. And every time you come out of that house, you're just a little bit more off, I guess, but you want to go back. And eventually it turns around, and it shows its true face, and at that point, who knows? And we've seen that a lot. Well, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate it. Not a problem. Yeah, thank you so much. If, like I said, it's, we could talk for you with you for hours, and uh, we love your you and your whole family. I mean, that's part of the one of the joys, really, of visiting Atchison is that everyone was so great to us. And, and we tried. Uh, no, it was, we we really did. We we would go back just for that reason. Scott probably won't go back to the house, maybe, but but it's it's kind of changed our lives in in, a, in no small way. So. Yeah, we can't thank you enough for participating and, and uh, having a great discussion with us. Not a problem. And if you guys ever want to talk again, call me up.
So have you seen there's a new Robin Hood movie coming out? <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure it'll be pinpoint historically accurate. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm sure it'll be very entertaining. Well, the Robin Hood I'm currently enjoying is actually the investing app called Robin Hood. This app lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. And the app's so simple and easy to use, it's a great way for people new to the stock market to start investing for the first time with confidence. I do love the idea behind Robinhood, which is to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Look, Scott and I are no Wall Street moguls, but we don't have to be to use this fun investing app because its design is simple and intuitive, and with easy-to-understand charts and market data, Robinhood actually makes creating an investment portfolio and keeping up with it fun. Yeah, we've never done much investment trading, but we've always wanted to learn how. So the best way to learn anything new is by doing, and that's how Robinhood is designed to be used. You learn how to invest while you're building your portfolio. You get a personalized news feed that lets you discover new stocks while you track your favorite companies. And you'll never miss the right time to invest because you get custom notifications about price movements. Yet one thing that kept me out of trying to learn about making my own trades instead of having a broker do it for you is that I always heard about all these fees that these other firms charge, sapping my profits. So what's the point? Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. For us, there isn't an easier or more fun way to start taking control of your own finances and learn how to invest than with the Robinhood app. And now they're going to help our listeners get started, too, by giving them a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build up their portfolios. Just go sign up at legends.robinhood.com. Man, I would love to have had one of those stocks and the Robinhood app back in the day. So once again, get started now by signing up at legends.robinhood.com. Dot com. I'm Vivian's grandma, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Oh, by the way, we forgot to point out that Forrest actually couldn't make it into the studio that day, so he was on the phone for that interview. That's why he sounded... Um, like I was on the phone. Like he was on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Taylor, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure to have you. We are in continued contact with him nearly daily now. He's actually shared 23 gigabytes of evidence from the Sally House with us mm. now. Which and will not all be on our website. No. <laughs> yes. I'm not going through that. No, that's that. a, coincidentally how large the audio files are for this series. But yeah, 23 gigs of stuff. So we were contemplating trying to maybe help them figure out how to organize all that. Yeah. Because that appeals to uh, organizational nature that I have where right. I want to corral and collect paranormal evidence and <laughs> well, i want to have yeah. like a library your like archival needs must be met they but, must be met well an interesting idea to make this evidence available for everybody because i've done this before where it's just you're alone on a saturday night and it's late and you was like ooh, let's look at something spooky on the internet and you, and you go check out evps and, and some of them are pretty good i've heard some chilling ones one that fit the profile of something repeated and i can't remember who this was it was years ago but it was uh, a woman's voice saying to these two other women who were i think sisters who were investigating this old church ooh, it's really spooky in here and then you hear a voice are you afraid oh are yeah afraid repeated twice and I didn't know repeating things was common but it was so clear it's like whoa you know I believe them and they had a bunch that they'd gotten but this amount of evidence like I said from a treasure trove and what's so special about this house is the consistency of the activity yeah. and the frequency because like I said even Greyfriars I don't think pays off this much and there are a few places well there are some around the United States especially that Dr. Sean had mentioned Bobby Mackey's Music World, Waverly, 
there are some places that ghost hunters go to frequently because you do get a lot of good evidence. Not all the time, certainly. And like you said, you may spend uh, three nights there if you're a ghost hunting show and get 10 minutes of anything dramatic oh, at all. Oh, man. And I, I actually just got chills thinking about something, a little teaser of uh, coming attractions. Our friend James Willis, who is an author, who we yeah. met at Kent Paranormal Weekend, has a Waverly story that will knock your socks off. So we're going to try to get him on in early 2019 to tell that story about that place. It's uh, an asylum, of course. So yeah. you can't go wrong with visiting the old empty <laughs> asylums. Before we move into our conclusions for us, I think we should talk a little bit about some of the stuff that Taylor brought up in his interview. Yeah, because uh, not only was this a while ago, so I had shelved a lot of these ideas in my mind just to make room and to do what we're, you know, the things at hand. But I wanted to go over again some of the things that he said that were especially mind blowing yeah. and thought provoking. The first one being I had kind of forgotten the setup of the TV remote that, get this, it went missing at their new house, the Pickman's new house, after the Sally house, after they'd moved out, the remote goes missing for quite a while. They don't find it back at their own house. They find it at the Sally house. Right. And scorched a little. Yeah, melted. We and have a picture of it. We should, by the end of the weekend here, have captions for most of that. I know we haven't had yeah, a lot of Yeah, we put the that. photos up, but didn't explain what they were yet. Yeah. Because we've been so busy making the very next show. Well, some <laughs> of those were explained in the show, and I know it was yeah. very long. And if you had caught it some of those explanations, then a lot of those pictures would make sense. You wouldn't need captions. But the but remote's up there, and also the pen is up there as well, right? The pen is also up there, that he again. Did, well, that he talked about being melted and having finger impressions. Well, oh, I would love to uh, get a print off of those and see who those belong to, but what it is, may be somebody from the 1850s. Yeah, but what is going on? I mean, aside from the interpenetration of matter yes. or the, the defiance of physics to get the remote from their existing house to the Sally house, which is... I can't remember exactly how far apart they are, but I have been by, the, I know where they live and I know where the Sally house, I think it's at least half a mile, it may be yeah. further. Yeah, I think so. So there's that whole thing where it disappears and then it winds up over there. They don't have a key. They're not in part of yeah. that. I mean, sure, they can call Les and go in, I'm sure, because they know him. Right. But they're not doing that. So how did the remote wind up over there? And then the next question is, why is everything melted? Well, just a couple of things. Obviously, heat and fire play a large role in whatever force is happening here and interacting with this house during this interpenetration of matter, or maybe it's just doing it to be a jerk. Look what I can do. I melted this. It, you know, it's like lighting the flower or singeing the flower yeah. that's on the windowsill. It sill. was charred with it, ash on the edges. Yeah, and his dad having little bits of yellow flame pop out just above his skin, like singeing the hair and a little bit of the clothing. Yeah, with Taylor saying, oh, look, dad's on fire again. Yeah, I know. That's how you, you take that as a kid. It's like, well, that's weird, but it happens here. But my point earlier when I was talking about the blinds at the top of the show, it's that what are the mechanics here? What are the quantum mechanics here? Is this a side effect of sending a remote <laughs> to another dimension or whatever happens to another location? Are there rules there? Or is this thing just singeing this stuff as a signature, or again, is that part of the process? Because I've always maintained, a lot of other people do, is that, sure, this sounds way, way out there, but in some sense, it's not magic. It's physics that we don't understand yet. This is happening, and it's happening through a process that we're just unaware of because it still seems to be happening. It's not abracadabra. Well, you make a super great point right there, which is that... 
if you accept that these are real events that are happening, that the remote did go to the other house and turn up melted, if you accept that all that is not a hoax or, or not a fabrication, then you must also accept that we don't truly understand the laws of physics. Not all of them. Hey, look, we don't understand uh, astrophysics yet and dark matter and how all that works. Yeah, I think they aren't they currently arguing about whether or not dark matter is actually a thing, that it might be a mistaken... I, I should, uh, probably shouldn't ask yeah. you this. Uh, well, I should ask I, Neil deGrasse Tyson this. <laughs> well, no, was, Neil deGrasse... I don't I, mean to put you on the spot. No, Neil deGrasse Tyson will tell you we're not exactly sure what it is. So it might be not exactly matter. It takes up space. And most of the universe seems to be composed of it, but we don't understand that. And the thing that I've gathered from uh, really loving astrophysics and cosmology and all that is that there are a lot of things that our smartest physicists don't agree on and don't understand. That's my takeaway. So to say that like, oh, well, there you go. We've got a handle on everything we know. That's ego. And then what happens when you walk into a place that is greater than you, while you still think you're the greatest thing in the universe, you and your ego and all of your compiled knowledge, here's something that's going to put you in your place and make you look foolish and scare you. Mm -hmm. Because it's operating on a level that you cannot explain and can't wrap your head around. And some people get very angry at that, yeah. as we've seen. Yeah, It's like Dave Davis or David Davis from Wales. Remember we're, we were interviewing him and he said, uh, you know, when he just told about the UFO experience there or what he saw, he got beat up. People punched him. Well, one, because it's like, we don't have that weirdness around in this town. This is a good place. We don't need you spouting off with this craziness. And I contended at the time, it's people's disbelief, and it scares them. And so they react violently. This stuff freaks people out so much that they react very strongly, shall we say. But here's another weird thing about the manipulation of electronics, and not so much the remote, but it's the text messages that came through that it's like, uh, here's a little devil emoji before there were emojis. Yeah. You know, on these older phones, you could send alphanumeric text, maybe a smiley face. You remember the old Nokia yeah. phone? You could do uh, some very simple text. And I don't know what phones these are, but for something to manipulate that as a text message and that shows up and get this, the phone is on the other side of the veil. Yeah, they don't know you. where it is. Yeah. It's calling. It's calling It's not you. just text messages. Yeah. It's phone calling and leaving voicemails. Yeah. And we're going to play one of those voicemails for you right now. Right. So that's a message <laughs> that they got from a phone while it was missing. Yeah. Is that the sound of the void or is that just water dripping? Where is that? I don't know what it is. I don't know, but I'm fascinated by it. I, I would love to see some images from the other side, because, well, it's... Uh, well, you would love to see those. <laughs> just, I'll stay home. It's like a, Careful again, what you're asking for with this place. It's a big mirror. <laughs> it's like being on the other side of the mirror in Lewis Carroll's world there. You know, maybe mirror milk isn't good to drink, Kitty. The idea is that there are other beings looking at us from behind this two-way mirror. I'm just curious, like, what does it look like to them? What do we look like? And are things just as mysterious once you pass over? And do they totally understand it? Because judging by some of the interpretations of the EVPs, it almost sounds like they are fascinated and maybe a little confused about what still goes on here. They don't quite get it. They're omniscient in a way, but they are not getting everything. And that goes to something, and somebody actually on Twitter had asked me about this because I mentioned it and then we didn't really 
go into depth on it. That goes to the whole idea that there seems to be some confusion about, with the EVPs specifically, how the DR60 works. Now, the EVPs are working in other places, but what we've heard with uh, a couple of the record, not ones that we made, but just recordings in general is, well, I mean, there is the one we made where there are some folks that think it says, what's he got there? Right. With respect to one of the recordings that Forrest made. Yeah, now, that's track other, 11. Track 11. Yeah. Other people think that that's saying, get out of here or get out of there. Or I told him to get out of or, here. Or I told him to get out yeah. of here. So again, everyone is hearing something different. But that's not the only case where we've heard specifically with the DR60 of that. We had heard another case, and I can't remember now. It might have been the Haunted Housewives who told us this or whatever. There was a recording where the voice on the other side, and it was more of a benevolent voice, but yeah. it, it was confused by the fact that the recorder worked as well as it did, it seemed. Uh, I remember that there was a quote. It was just like, how are you hearing me? It was like that. Yeah. There's like this confusion or this fascination with this technology working this way. Now, and this is specifically relates to DR60s yeah. because there's lots of other ways to have quote unquote spirit communication. There's spirit boxes. Right, there's right. all like, and I don't know if there's messages like that that come through. But the other thing while we're on the topic of what might be being said is I thought was interesting was when Joshua was talking about light and how often light comes up and yes. go to the light and all that. And it's straight out of poltergeist. Um, <laughs> well, that's why it was in there. Yeah, yeah. So there's this fascination with light and he was using light for him. Light is interchangeable with the idea of God. Yeah. And, and energy and, and energy and, and, and all right, of that. And, but, and everything that we need to seek to thrive on and survive with. Right. And that reminded me of a quote from an old episode of Paranormal Witness. It was actually called The Mothman Curse. This was on season five, episode six of Paranormal Witness, when this young couple had gone to check out Point Pleasant. And so they were in Point Pleasant. They were out at the bunkers where the Mothman had been seen. It's a pretty crazy story, pretty amazing story which I'm not going to get into now, but it's an interesting episode for all you Mothman fans out there. If you haven't seen it, season five, episode six, Paranormal Witness. But this is what I was thinking about when Josh mentioned that about the light in episode three. This is a summary from the uh, Sci-Fi channel about that episode. The last straw was Christy getting one final phone call from her blocked caller in which the raspy voice said, I'm going to eat your light. Mm. And it's like, well, Tell you what, that plays right into what Josh is saying and what lots of messages, when you start hearing the word light coming through in these messages and this sort of obsession with it, yeah. that honestly makes sense to me. It's I can't believe of... I'm sitting here talking about, <laughs> I don't know what's happening, but it does. You're it makes allowing sense. yourself to talk about it. But no, if you think of the word or the term light as interchangeable with soul and then the EVP Swallow Your Soul? Yeah, that EVP. So let's talk a little bit about the Swallow Your Soul EVP, which Taylor mentioned. He sent us a recording that the Kansas Paranormal Group, or KPG, made, which his aunt, as he said, was in, and his parents were involved with too. And this is from several years ago. But in this recording, you can hear them. They're in the house, and they're just talking. And then you're going to hear that EVP in clear English. And it's strange. I want to go ahead and play this EVP. We just want you to know that when you hear the voice of the person saying, swallow your soul, it does not match the voice of anyone that was present at the time and is not a known voice where that does happen, where there are EVPs where it sounds like a person that's part of the investigative team or someone that they might know or people hear their own selves saying something they know they didn't say. However, in this case, the person saying, swallow your soul is not a voice that's familiar to them. 
and you're going to hear them talking in the background and they don't even react to it. And on top of that, it sounds very loud and close to the microphone to me. So I'm going to play that now. They can't kill you in the sense of taking your life away. They can make you kill yourself. They can make somebody else kill you, but they can't kill you. Swallow yourself? What, what prevents them? Uh, it's the, like I said, it, that is the law. It. Okay, so in that recording that we got from Taylor, you can clearly hear someone, I'm not sure who it is, I wish we did know, you can clearly hear someone who's discussing Forrest's rules of the paranormal way <laughs> well, before that, Forrest came along. No, it's a, yeah. <laughs> These are just observations about what spirits are able to do versus what you see in Hollywood. Right. And I've come to firmly believe this even more. People can be under influence, shall we say, by these negative forces and do horrible things to themselves and to others. And some people are more vulnerable to it and others are not. But that's what's being explained, is that they can't outright just float a gun through the air and shoot you or have a knife fling through the air and stick into your heart. However, they can fling a knife through the air and come real close to you, maybe even nick you. What I love about this, it's so clear. And I detect a Midwestern twang. Yeah, this is the other thing that's shifted with me. If you'd have sent this EVP to me, you know, prior to July and prior to my experience and also prior to what I know about the Sally House, I would have been like, someone else is in the room that just said that. And they, they're they yeah. giving us a recording and they're saying it's an EVP. I mean, it's clear English and that's what's happening here. Now, my hindsight on that is this is the Sally House. This is an EVP. And we've extensively interviewed a good deal of the folks involved in all these investigations. And you know what? I can see where this could be real and it's crystal clear. It's not like our EVP. And they've sent several, when I say several, that came from the folder that has 23 gigabytes of stuff in it. Right, right. It's so much stuff, they don't even know what's in there. That's yeah. how much stuff they have. There is a lot of evidence. And that goes to another statement I always make. It's like people are asking for proof. And my question is, well, what do you consider proof? Is this evidence good enough for you? How does this make you feel? Because if you get this amount of evidence, and there is plenty of it, photos, audio, video, all kinds of measurements of strange anomalies happening, and you still don't believe, then I don't think anything will ever convince you unless you have a personal experience. So you get to the other side yourself. Well, even that, well, in regards to what I was talking about earlier before we played the EVP clip, we have also gotten some comments from other cases and other examples that we've gone over is that people on the other side, especially, uh, again, if the death was quick, this is often said, unexpected, they didn't see it coming. And now they're suddenly dead, or they just were fighting it. When they get to the other side, they're not sure what's happened to them. They don't really know where they are. We just heard a Josh Lewis EVP today where he's at a headstone in a graveyard, and he asks, is this your name? Do you know your name? And the answer that comes back on the DR60 is, I can't remember. It's kind of confusing. And so that might tie in with this sense of frustration and anger and wanting people to get out because this might be my house. I may have lived here. I may have built this house. Whatever it is, I still feel like I belong here, and you people do not. I scream, but you can't hear me, and I don't really know how you're communicating with me. So there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of frustration and anger. 
some think it goes much deeper and darker than just pure anger at you being in my house, but there does seem to be that element. And not only this case, but again, other messages that people have gotten from the other side, that there is confusion there and people don't know what's happening. So they kind of bumble about as they used to. I do want to also say that with regard to Swallow Your Soul, uh, one of our one of our listeners, her name's Jennifer, and she mentioned to this on Twitter, hi, Jennifer, thank you so much for sending this in, that that's actually a line in the cult classic Army of Darkness oh, that, that happens towards the end of the movie. And it is. Yeah, and it's not an uncommon expression in a way, even, yeah, you know, yeah. for a horror kind of a thing, because think about it, it's very uh, graphic and uh, visual in its expression. You know, yes. I'm going to swallow your soul. You know, it's like, well, the voice that this is coming from sounds like, the nice lady who works at the Sonic. You I'm know, not going to go with just, nice on her. I don't think she sounds nice. Well, uh, it's not demonic, like, oh, I'm going to swallow your soul. Right. It's not that stereotypical kind of a, a voice. Right. She sounds pretty normal. I would love to see what face goes with that. And also, I want to know what era that is. Is that from the mid-19th century yeah. or later? You know, what era, where is that coming from? Whose voice is that? And is it really from a person? Or is it an approximation or a borrowed voice from one of the visitors that have been there? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, that's like your Terminator thing. It's like it gets near you and now it's got the voice imprint. It can duplicate it. I think another part of one of the Pikmin stories that, you know, we heard from Taylor and we didn't get to with Tony and Deborah, but they have so many. I don't know. It seems like you could talk to them every day for weeks and not get to all of them. But was the one about when Tony had the accident in the grain silo, yeah. which I've never worked on a farm or in an agriculture environment. The only reason I know how terrifying that is is because of the movie Witness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where the silo like collapses. And I do know you can suffocate from the dust. I know the dust can be explosive. Oh, no, no. Yeah, that dust, because uh, in the Pacific Northwest on the uh, eastern Washington area, where they grow a lot of wheat. Uh, yeah. Kansas is also known as the wheat state, or I guess the sunflower state. But in eastern Washington, near Washington State University in Pullman, there's a lot of wheat fields. So I've known people that, you know, grew up working there. And it's a very dangerous, first of all, farms are very dangerous places to work. A lot of big machinery, a lot of kids can get hurt growing up there. But they're usually pretty stout and hardy if they make it through. But the idea is that they would be very tense and cautious around the time that you would fill these silos because like a truck backfiring would make them jump because that means an elevator could be exploding, you know, just from right. rain dust. But the fact that this thing is commenting on a accident that no one knows about yet, except for Tony and maybe a few people where he's working, but certainly not Deborah yet. Yeah. And it's saying, look at that. I've already got him. He's dying right now. Yeah. In a mocking, nasty way. Taylor later went on to say, you know what? It has no less power where you are right now than it does here in Atchison. Yeah. And I want to talk about that here in a few minutes in our conclusions, because there's a couple of strange things that have happened since we got back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As much power <laughs> wherever you are now as it does if you're in Atchison. I wanted to touch on a few more things with Taylor before we move on to yes. that final stuff. Another thing that Taylor talked about that actually wasn't in the interview is this story that was pretty amazing about Tony, and this is at their new house. This is not even in the Sally house, but Tony feeling that something was off uh, yeah. one day and he started going around the house taking pictures. When you go in and you start the invest, you take pictures of everything because you need to be able to tell <laughs> if something's moved or gone strange or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So he, they're taking these pictures and in this uh, one particular room on a bookshelf, 
is the picture of Sally, and I say Sally in air quotes, but the little girl mm -hmm. that he saw in the kitchen that day when he dropped his orange juice glass back yeah. in the Sally house. And so he takes a picture of her on the bookcase, and then uh, whatever else he's doing in the room, he takes another picture about 45 seconds later. And we know this because we have timestamps. We have the photos. You'll be able to see them on the website. So with the timestamps, you can see actually what time they were taken, what day they were taken, the year, and how far apart they were taken. And what they realized when they looked at the pictures later was that in the one picture, the drawing of Sally, her eyes are open, and in the next picture, 45 seconds later, they are closed. And 45 seconds is enough time. Probably if you had two identical frames, you could put the other one up there. Well, and, if you're what, faking the photos, you could have done it, uh, taking a photo. Well, you'd have to, it was a sketch. It it's not yeah. a photo. Right, that's right. right. Yeah, that's so right. Tony would have had yeah. to sketch the other one and have it in an identical frame and put it up there. Not that that's impossible. No, I, but they, know, they but were at their own house, the new house. The new house. Uh, not the Sally house. Right. But it's not really an investigation. He's just going around taking He's photos. He's just taking pictures. Right. And the eyes are closed in the second picture. And it's not just the eyes. I looked very closely at these. The postures, the head is down a little. It's a different drawing. Yeah. So here's my question. Yeah. And you don't have an answer. I'm just, it's rhetorical. <laughs> but what are the physics going on there to make that possible? What are the mechanics of that? Because I can understand something uh, going along this line of belief that things can be manipulated electrically, you know, because again, it's that energy, it's that zap force, whatever you want to call it, is somehow easy to be manipulated. Like lights can flicker, things can happen and be shut off electronically. That seems to be a big arena, but like, how do you change the carbon molecules on a piece of paper and rearrange those into a new formation and then move them back again. Yeah, because that's the other thing. It went back. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the questions that I asked Taylor after the interview, after I heard this story, I just texted him uh, yesterday or day before yesterday as we're recording this and asked him if his dad had ever even drawn the other picture. Because what I wanted to know was if a piece of paper had they been replaced. Out. Right. Like from his desk or some folder somewhere. Yeah. And he said that he didn't even draw it. He never even drew that picture of her with her eyes closed. Right. So now you've got this other picture of her with her eyes closed, drawn in the style that Tony draws in. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to all the replacement and the matter stuff that you're asking about, we've got an artist on our hands. <laughs> well, the, of some kind. In a way, yeah. Or again, you know, if they're able to mimic stuff, is this just part of the process? Because then if you ask like, well, look, I've created a doppelganger out of spare molecules on the other side of the partition here and rearrange them. And it's a pretty good rendition. But as we said before with doppelgangers, they're not exactly alike. They're not an exact duplicate, that there's something off. Is that a preventative measure? Is that a regulator preventing a total duplication? That you can get close, that's part of the rules, but you can't get it exactly right. And that's why this photo is different, or yeah, who knows. But that's what's really interesting is that these different types of things can be manipulated in different ways that are creative, literally. So one other aspect here that Taylor brought up, and it is one of the more spooky things, and then again, you know, it is some of the things you'll see in a horror movie or whatever, but it seems to be a real life kind of aspect to places like this. And I think people that will study this for any period of time will tell you that this is a real thing. And you just have to look at the surrounding factors of people and their lives and how they turn out. And I do still wonder if this is not ending up as new stories currently in some way 
the horrible things we hear about. The social studies teacher who was down on his luck and got to live in the house rent-free, Les did him a favor, let him stay there, and it changed him that people who are vulnerable in a way, and he may have been depressed about his situation, you know, things weren't going that great, and he's just kind of scraping by, but at least he has a place to stay, and he stays there a while, and he seems different. Something has changed him, and that's what Taylor said, is that this place seems to change people, and it's not always people who are really depressed, but I've heard of stories of things really going wrong for paranormal investigators, you know, that ends up in tragedy and death even. And the same thing with Joanna Barnes. Remember her story where she lived next door and seemed to have a lot of uh, ill effects from proximity? And we don't know. These things happen to people even who aren't in supposedly haunted places on their own. But Definitely when a lot of things like this seem to happen and there's activity that's unexplainable and tragedy follows in some of these cases or near tragedy, you got to wonder. And I do believe that, uh, again, this is just talking with people who've done a lot of investigations, that they've worked with other people who had to get out, people who started to lose their minds. This is a real thing and it's dangerous. And I believe, as it's been said about this house, is that if you give it the attention it wants to a degree it's satisfied. But like a lot of greedy people we know, and ones who are not so nice, and those who are really not nice, they will keep taking and taking and taking until there's nothing left. So as we do here on the show, we try to look at all perspectives. And if you're looking for answers, well, sometimes the technology only goes so far. That's another thing we've heard from paranormal investigators that a lot of times you get too focused on the gear. The cameras, the infrared, the DR60s and all this stuff, that really it's all a personal experience for everyone. And that is also part of it. And if you're too focused on your technology, that you miss a lot of it. You miss a lot of the experience because it is a pretty wonderful and frightening at times connection to something that is much bigger than us. And that's what, you know, I think a lot of people are looking for. So where are these answers going to be found? Well, if uh, beyond what the technology can give you, and beyond what the history can give you and, you know, your own experiences even, like with Scott, I think there's another area that we should look into that may have more answers about the other side and the spirit world in general, and that is from mediums. So we asked a couple that we know. Over the course of the show, we've gotten to meet and get involved with a few specific mediums. One we've mentioned on the show before a few times is Debbie Chestnut, who right. we met in person actually when we back when we went to Detroit. Right. She was not too far from where we were in Michigan and she came out, we had dinner with her. And she's been a good friend to us well, since then. Yeah, Debbie and, uh, was really instrumental as a first contact for helping my friend John and his family in the Sludge Entity episodes. That's right. She was, I believe, the first person that John reached out to because she is an author mostly. I don't think she would bill herself as a psychic, but she does have some mediumship qualities. Yes. She picks up impressions from photos and uses that for her own paranormal investigations. But yeah, she's a pretty good author. She's written a lot of books in the, in, on these subjects that are, are pretty fascinating. And some of them are a lot of just how-to, you know, like what's going on here? And so who better to ask? So she's become a, a good friend of ours since that episode and since we got to meet her in Michigan. 
And so Debbie has an Amazon author's page. We'll have a link to that. And uh, she's got a lot of great books, which are just give you the skinny on what's going on in your house, which oftentimes might be just bad wiring. And that's one of the subtitles of her books is that not everything is spooky. It's kind of like what Dr. Sean says. If you want your house to be haunted, if you believe that, you want to believe that, you'll make it haunted in your mind. Yeah. You won't take no for an answer. So she's very even keeled. She has a, a healthy amount of skepticism, but also she's in tune with things not of this world, shall we say. And the other medium is someone named Ama Jordan, who we just kind of recently came across, who was a friend of our friends, Jill and Roger, the other paranormal investigation team that we know personally. And she goes by the name The Dreaming Medium. And she has a website. You can find her on Facebook as Ama, A-M-M-A-J-O-R-D-A-N. And her title is The Dreaming Medium. And you can book readings with her. And she also operates the same way. She has more of those mediumship kind of qualities where she gets messages and she relays them and she can see photos and pick up impressions from them. And she has a huge body of work. She's worked with paranormal teams and TV shows and radio, I believe, as a consultant and continues to. So we'll have links. If you want to get a reading from her, you can. So as we were going through the material that we just brought back from Atchison, that was one of my thoughts. It's like, well, these are a lot of interesting pictures. So as Scott got a unsettling feeling with the fish and chip shop in uh, the Grim Reaper episode, I remember it's like, we were looking at those and he's like, man, there's something bad about this photo. And it's the one, I, I believe it's in Scotland. And it's just an alley where somebody saw a creepy, pale-faced, Grim Reaper-type character hanging out next to a fish and chip shop. Yeah. And I know that sounds silly, but you definitely blanched. You were like, oh, I don't know. It's just something really heavy and not right about this photo. That's kind of the impressions that Debbie and Ama get. So, of course, when we got this material back, over the course of like a month and a half or whatever, we sent photos to them and had them look at some of the videos and just to see, like, are you getting any impressions? And... I've got to say both of them are also very even keeled. And I know some people aren't going to believe that because they don't believe anything psychic, but they don't leap to the spiritual answer, first of all. They want to see what's going on here. And both of them are very wary of pareidolia and things you might see and make up in your own mind. So they're getting answers, though, from senses that we are not that in tune with. So we're just going to paraphrase some things that they thought, but here are just some quick impressions we thought might be interesting because they might shed some light. And again, keep in mind, this is not the be-all, end-all. Just because these are coming from mediums, they will tell you themselves that these are just impressions. They might be wrong. Usually they're more often right than not, but you know you can't go by this 100%. These are just things that they're feeling at the time. And as time goes on, those may change. But here are some interesting things. So something that Debbie said... She says, yeah, something was drowning out the other spirits, but it could also be that there's a portal or vortex close by or in the house. We often joke, Scott and I, it's like, there's so many things going on here that it's like a paranormal bus station with the variety of people. It's like, yeah, you're getting all kinds coming through the house spiritually, but on the other side, you're getting all kinds of people who are living and touring the house constantly. So it's like this bus station with a invisible divider down the middle, and the spirits on the one side can mostly, I think, see who's coming in through the house, and the living people can only get glimpses through bits of interactions, shall we say, weird photos, things moving, EVPs. So it's a kind of a lopsided communication. So one of the prevailing ideas, especially by mediums, is that there is a lot of activity within the town. It's moving around. Remember we heard Maria talk about that. One of the mediums that had studied the house a lot said it was so noisy. 
around the house and the surrounding town that these things were coming through so much that she was not going to do her investigations anymore. She needed more peace and quiet. That's one of the ideas that Debbie had, is that maybe there is some kind of portal to the other side near that house, and that's why you're getting so much different and varied activity. And so Debbie was kind of agreeing with the previous psychic that she heard about, that there's so much activity that there could be a lot of different spirits in this house. Like with any other place, with humans, some are good, some are bad, some are neutral. She would suggest talking to more people in Atchison and getting their impressions and just recording that. And so, yeah, as we've seen, you can do that and you get, you know, miles and miles of evidence and testimony. The subject of eyewitness testimony comes up a lot on our show. And of course, it's covered in the course we're covering over at The Great Courses Plus with the series Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear Professor Murray's lecture about how it applies to criminal court cases in our legal system, especially with the story of the Ronald Cotton case. And here's a couple of interesting facts about eyewitness testimony versus evidence found at a crime scene that most people don't realize. Tangible physical evidence like hairs, fibers, fingerprints, and even DNA is considered indirect evidence because the judge and or a jury must make an inference based on that evidence. That means they have to use those items to make their own conclusions. Right, but first-person eyewitness testimony, if it's true, is considered a statement of fact with no interpretation necessary. So that's labeled as direct evidence. But the problem here is, if that testimony is true. As we all know, people on the witness stand can lie or be mistaken, especially in times of extreme stress. And since our minds can play tricks on us, we can end up doubting what we saw or even extrapolate beyond what we saw, which can lead to confusion and mistakes. We can easily blend new information with the original story. Yeah, and another interesting phenomenon experts have noted is that a witness who was uncertain about their story at first can often become more certain over time. It's like we're so desperate to be absolutely correct that we subconsciously force ourselves to become more confident in our assertions. This sounds a lot like my son. You know what? Even, <laughs> even though eyewitness testimony can be problematic, it's absolutely essential in a court case. We all just need to remember, as the Innocence Project has stated, memory is evidence and must be handled as carefully as the crime scene itself to avoid forever altering it. Man, there is just so much to investigate over at The Great Courses Plus, from ancient civilizations to conspiracy theories to learning how to create art. But if you love learning about things like forensic history and all those other subjects, here's a way you can enjoy all that for free. Just sign up now through our special URL to start your free trial. Sign up right now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends to get your free trial and start digging in. That's The Great Courses Plus dot com slash legends. CBD is gaining popularity in the health and wellness world. Both of us have noticed that it feels like everyone we know is talking about it. That's why we want to introduce you to Charlotte's Web. They're an industry leader who sells broad-spectrum whole plant hemp extract with CBD in the form of oils, capsules, and topicals. Charlotte's Web CBD isn't intoxicating, but it does have some pretty powerful benefits working with your body's existing endocannabinoid system. People love Charlotte's Web oils and capsules because they support management of everyday stresses, help in supporting restful sleep cycles, and maintaining a sense of calm and focus. CBD is also known for helping athletes recover from exercise-induced inflammation, and I use it before and after I go jogging, and I love it. 
Customers trust Charlotte's Web because they grow and hand-tend more than 250,000 hemp plants in the U.S. Their hemp is responsibly farmed without any pesticides, herbicides, or fungicides, and the extract is filtered five times for quality and consistency. Charlotte's Web hemp extract, either in oils or capsules, is a simple way to upgrade your day. They also make a soothing balm and cream infused with CBD. You might have questions about hemp extract and how CBD works. Research it on your own. You might be surprised by what you find. Charlotte's Web is offering a unique discount to our listeners. Jump over to cwhemp.com and enter code AL at checkout for 10% off your Charlotte's Web hemp extract purchase, which ships to all 50 states. They have a 30-day risk-free guarantee, so you have nothing to lose giving it a shot. That's cwhemp.com and enter code AL at checkout for 10% off your Charlotte's Web hemp extract purchase. Some exclusions apply. See website for details. And just so you know, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Carl from Alexandria, Virginia, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. So here's something that's kind of interesting that affects Scott and kind of ties in with something that he experienced. Now, keep in mind, as they will request you to do, they want a cold reading. They don't want anything to cloud their judgment. They don't want front-loading or pre-loading, as some people call that. They don't want any impressions. They want to go in clean and look at the photos or video and tell you what their impressions are. And so neither Debbie nor Ama knew much about the Sally House and the whole story. I'm sure they've heard the name, but they didn't really research it beforehand. And so I trust them. I've gotten to know both of them, so has Scott. We have friends that vouch for them, of course, and uh, we trust them implicitly for their honesty and uh, their candidness with their descriptions. So one thing that Debbie picked up on when she saw the video of us in the backyard, and that was, I think, the second stop. So as we described in the interview with Maria, she takes you through the living room, and then she takes you right out to the back of the house, which, of course, in the old days used to be the front of the house, right, where patients would be received. And gives a little explanation. She kind of points out like, well, yeah, there's a, the first street was there. And then the flood took that away. This used to be the front of the house. While we were out there in the video, Debbie says here, she got the impression, especially in the back of the house. And that's what we we're talking about. Yes. That the spirits were interested in Scott for some reason. And it could be because he seemed a little skittish or fearful. And Debbie says, you know, I understand being afraid for sure. And sometimes it's the fear that either helps us or makes us seem vulnerable to spirits. So she was picking up on the impression that something spiritually within the house was zeroing in on Scott, maybe because of the attitude you've already told us about. Yeah, I was very interested when Debbie said that, when she said that something was interested in me. I will say this, though. I was not scared or skittish in the backyard. Right. That happened later. Uh, well, I'm not going to say, <laughs> well, I'd be the, the first to admit I right. got scared right. and I got skittish. <laughs> but at that point, I was still, I think, a little incredulous about the house. And again, all respect to the Pickmans, I don't mean that nothing ever happened there. I just couldn't imagine that it was still going on. Because generally, hauntings and stories like this, there's an event and it moves into the past. It doesn't continue with such an intensity. Maybe it continues in a very small way, but not with the kind of intensity that we found there. Right. And so... 
because we had just gotten there and I was like, well, it's a musty old house and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure this stuff happened and it would be really interesting to talk to Tony and Deborah. Yeah. And I was thinking about those things. Were you thinking this, all the action was relegated to the past that it just yes. kind of dried up? Yeah. I just kind of assumed that it had. Right. But to Debbie's point about the interest in me, because it was Debbie too, that also later said that I was the perfect target in terms of being on the cusp of skepticism. Yeah. And she said that, in a way, made me more attractive than you, for example, because you are, well, I'm not going to say what you, I mean, you can say what you well, are. Well, no, she, like, what she said is that, at least spiritually, that I have an edge to me. Right. Which, which is a little, like a hard candy shell, let's say, that's a little harder to crack. But You would be probably in a position, and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. you're less in these scenarios trying to figure out any ifs, and more of like, if this thing is real, yeah. more like if this particular instance is an example of something that I already believe can happen. That's yeah, where you're as, at. Right. As right as for as me, I, right. I was like, is this particular example proof that these types of things exist at all? Right. And I think she described me as a soft place to land. <laughs> right. As opposed to you, because you were like, I didn't get, and you went up and you got your own recording and everything, and yeah. it had some stuff on it, but nothing like what happened to me. So right. it did seem, and what she was implying was that I was targeted. You were ripe for having your brain tweaked and your emotions and your beliefs and if we want to go with the idea that a lot of these actions are pranks, that these things are tricksters or pranksters, or just mean, or just wanting to mess with you because they're bored on the other side. It's eternal. That, here's, it a that guy, somebody, here's a guy we could mess with. There was somebody in the course of this series in our research that said it was like a game. It is messing with you in a lot of these degrees, and that's just what Taylor just said, is that it meets your expectations, it defies your expectations, it gives you way more than you bargained for to mess with you. Or maybe it's not. And maybe, you know, it's like another idea. I think kind of Dr. Sean was getting towards this is that the scratches and the fires and, and all these other weird things that happen may not be intentional. That's just part of the interaction. The scratches end up, it's like, well, it's uh, something trying to get your attention, doesn't know how else to do it. That's how it's doing it. And it's not really considering that it's annoying and stinging in the shower, but it's just happening in a way. Like that's just part of the incidental collateral. But there's another theory that it's not good, that it knows that this reaching out is irritating and messing with people. And so with you, I think maybe it is father figures because your dad to me is also a father, but he's neutral in this. You are here for a purpose. That's some of the other answers that we got is... uh from the interpretation is mentioning my dad because he was with us that day. Yeah, that's right. Right. You've said that before. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the, but in the that was right. Exactly. I think 15, 16 hours ago. Yeah, I know. it's <laughs> hard to. I don't say it's hard to tell what's <laughs> in been the said. series. Yeah. I don't know if that's a male thing to focus on, and so Tess and Megan were left alone a little. Again, my attitude through the whole thing was I was trying to be very I open. I would not and say very that neutral. Tess and Megan were left alone. Well, for the most I mean, part, Megan had the pressure on her chest. Tess he, had the voice in her ear, and then they both had the. I mean, the scratches were light, but they had the scratches in the same spot on their right, right. arms. They received a little bit of interaction, but as far as the recordings go and all the interpretations we've got, you were the one asking the questions. And so you got the answers. Yeah. Tess did get a little, a bit of an answer in her ear. So again, there was a little bit of interaction there. There are probably of varying and differing belief systems and levels, shall we say. For myself, I, again, I try to be very neutral and open and a blank slate, as I've been told to do. Plus, 
I was kind of acting as the cameraman. So I'm trying to juggle these roles. Plus I'm, I'm excited and I'm taking this all in and I'm having a good time. And so I'm kind of like a non-target in a way, I think because of my belief system personally and my mental state. And like I said before, I could be startled. I open a closet door and there's a freaky decayed nun in there. I'm probably going to shriek, <laughs> but that's a startling thing. If I open it up and, uh, you know, I see a specter or, you know, just this horrible image of something grotesque from the depths of hell, I can kind of understand that. I believe that things like that are possible. So it doesn't tweak me as bad as somebody's like, this is impossible. This can't happen. I don't know what's going on. You know, you're losing your mind at that point because your mind's not open to handling that. So for me, yeah, I can be scared, but I wasn't. So I, I think that's a feeling I had throughout that like really nothing is going to happen here to me, but I was trying to be observant to see if anything would happen to you guys. And like I said, you were cruising along just fine. And that's what our attitude was. It's like, well, let's just go check this out. I just was not sure personally, but that was your attitude until you heard the recording. Yes. So here's a couple of Amma's impressions, and she was listening to the recordings, and she's done this thousands and thousands of times. She is hearing screaming, and she's thinking that uh, he's screaming his answers, kind of like losing his ass here with you personally, screaming, yelling, throwing a fit. It's mad. It wants you out. It wants you to go and take everyone with you. That means our entire group. I did. Well, we did. Well, yeah, it's a tour. The tour is going to end. We're not staying there overnight. I do leaving. feel I've maybe put a little bit of, damp of damper on things by saying I wasn't going back inside. Uh, yeah, my feeling of like, what have you got to say to us? Are you going to say it to me? Yeah. Am I going to get something similar? And basically, it's a, it's a control measure. After hearing that, it's like, well, whoa, this is something here that's unusual. I've never really heard this before personally. I want to see if I can get it again. And if you have a message... Speak clearly into the microphone. Well, it's got a message like, well, then tell me the message. If it is get out, say it clearly and say it again, because uh, I just, I want to hear it this time. And I'm trying to get some communication with myself. But basically, yes, that's the impression that a lot of people have gotten is that it's frustrated, whatever it is, get out of my space. So Alma has another interesting insight here about just the photo. Like we said, she can pick up impressions from photos. I believe this is the photo that we just happened to use for our hero shot for the webpage, but she got a very specific feeling here. And as she says, uh, that Sally House photo, I instantly feel horror when I see this photo. But it's not from inside the house. Something, not someone, but something is watching the house. And this is a deep witchy thing, she says. You know, someone who lived there conjured a being to watch the house and it's become an issue. I feel like a male tried to pull in some sort of protective being. Didn't know what he was doing. I'll say the being is female in her fury. Just the words that come into my head. So that's one impression. And that's interesting because as Dr. Sean was saying, there are so many people that come into that house. It's an unregulated space in a lot of ways. And they're doing their own strange things in the house, whether they believe it's good or bad. It's kind of free reign. And so maybe somebody was dabbling in something they should not have been. You know, the way I feel about mediums reading is that it could be totally 100% correct. It could be 80%, who knows? It could be off on a few things, but uh, overall, I'm going to pay attention. Yeah. Because I believe that there's something there. So impressions that come through, it's not like an exact text that you read from. These are feelings. There are a lot of metaphors involved, things that stand for other things, but these are felt. She has a few impressions about what was heard on the recordings. Basically, she's saying on the EVP... 
I think the screaming sound is just that. He's so angry. He wants people to be afraid, so they leave him alone. And it's a very sad feeling to me. So imagine how you might scream if people were in and out of your house all the time, uninvited by you, touring your safe haven. So then they ask to speak, and you do, and no one really hears you until later when it doesn't matter. So I thought that was a funny insight. Uh, yeah, it's, it's true. I'm saying something to you, but you're going to leave here. I'm not going to see where you go. And uh, that's when my message is heard. Ama goes on to say, so you've talked all you can and no one is listening and you just want to be left alone. And that's when you lose it and just scream, hoping they will hear that. So he's doing everything he can to think of to get rid of the living. He doesn't want them living. They're bothering him and he'll do whatever it takes to scare people away. He's not all there, so to speak. So one minute he's screaming, the next he's asking about equipment you're using. She's the one who thought my track said, like, uh, what does he have there? Right. Talking about the camera and the recorders and I'm juggling all this kind of stuff that's got lights on it. So curiosity killed the cat, right? Well, he hates that. He's curious about the difference in his state and the living. He's not clear that being dead means he's given up the rights to his home and his property. And that's what goes to my point earlier is people who have passed on not really getting it that they don't own the place anymore. They're still residing there and now just people are coming through. So she goes on to say, I think sadly he doesn't recognize exactly who he is. Like he's forgotten himself, which is interesting. That also goes back to Josh's EVP. Is this your name? It's like, I can't remember or I don't know anymore. It goes to my EVP too. Yeah. When I asked, who are you in right. my own house? And it said, I can't tell. Yeah, that's right. They know they're there. They're not exactly sure what's happened. I think they kind of bumble along. I, I, one of my favorite ghost videos was on a security cam, I believe in a pub in England. And it looks like there's a woman wiping the tables mm -hmm. in the bar. And then she just flies through the wall. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a favorite yeah. of mine because it's pretty crisp. And so you're done. You don't have to wipe the tables anymore. But it's like, well, this is what I do. So I'm just going to kind of sum up Amma's, uh, she had a few more impressions, but one thing that I think was important to note is that she does not believe in kind of the strict definitions of like demons that most of us do in a Judeo-Christian sense. So she says you have to be careful about that because those are our human living definitions and filters that we place on stuff. And she just doesn't go by that. So she would say probably like a lot of people believe like maybe Dr. Sean and Maria and some of these people, it's like, there's something that's not good there, but imagine, you know, just like humans, there's some people who are really awful and they end up hurting people and want to, and they pass on. And there's something there that's kind of dark and frustrated and really negative in a way, but there's a lot of things there. Like he says, I cannot say that there is only one male there without actually visiting the location either. So that's another thing she wants to state, is that she may go there herself on a later date and get slightly different impressions. But I think they're just interesting insights, just superficially here as we look at this initially. But don't hold her to it. She would have to go there and really soak up the place. But I just thought that these impressions were really interesting. What's funny here is that she's kind of agreeing with Dr. Sean. As, you know, she says, as for a town being full of spirits, there's enough history in Kansas with, with natives and settlers, never mind the military, that has left many ugly stains and a lot of hauntings. To say that the whole town is haunted to me is a laugh. All towns are haunted. There's 20,000 plus years of settlements and people on this land. So that kind of also goes back to Dr. Sean saying it's like, you just can't look at one specific thing and think, okay, that's the answer to this place. Here's one thing, though, I thought was interesting that Debbie Chestnut said, and it has to do with how Scott feels now and what has happened to him after the experience. And one thing that Debbie said that made us take notice is that she couldn't help get the impression that Scott is not out of the woods yet, that there is something spirit-wise maybe lingering after these trips. And, you know, she wanted to talk with us via Skype to, again, get that visual impression 
and pick up that sense. And she didn't know why at that moment when she wrote as she was being told this, but it was kind of like a message, not so much a strong warning, but more as a be aware kind of a message. Just keep your eye out. Be vigilant. This thing ain't over yet. So in light of that, has anything happened to you? Well, there have been a couple of things that have happened, but there's been a lot of little things, not the least of which was finding out what was on file one of my recorder, which was made <laughs> before we even went to Kansas. Yeah. Before we went to Kansas. Yeah. That's when that was made. I guess I'm still in a, in a bit of a strange spot with the DR-60 itself. That's something I want to talk about here a little bit before I talk about the one negative incident that really stands out to me. But, you know, it sits in the box that I got at FedEx when I shipped it to Ed Primo for us, for him to analyze it. We have that box and I keep it in that box. And it's almost like that box is like a little coffin and it. <laughs> it's on my desk and I look at it and it has like this strange energy. And I feel weird about the recorder itself mm -hmm. and the fact that the file's just on there. Well, it's a delivery system for a message from the other side for you. I mean, it's just always there. Yeah. I could delete it. I mean, we've got it ingested into the computer. Right. We have files of it, you know, and I wonder if there's a lasting effect of it being on the recorder. The other day I had an opportunity. My wife was going for her work to the Charlie Chaplin Studios here in L.A., which have been on the same street where they were when he made all his movies. They're still right there. Mm -hmm. They later became A&M. Herb Alpert's music company for a while. There was music stages there. But anyway, A&M Music was there for recording. And then after that, it became the Jim Henson Studio. So right. I went over there just to hang out with my wife and watch a recording session that I was very fortunate to be a part of. And I knew that I was going and that the place is notoriously haunted. It is famous in Hollywood for being haunted. And I went in and I got to my desk and I was like, I should take the DR-60. There's like celebrity ghosts there galore because it's been a recording studio for so long. And prior to that, it was Charlie Chaplin's studio. And I stood and looked at it for like five minutes on my desk. And I was like, no, I'm not taking it because I, I didn't want to know. I didn't want to get a recording in that <laughs> studio. But now, yeah. since then, I'm like, oh, I should have taken it. I did try to do a recording with my iPhone there, but yeah. like I and I listened to that, I didn't get anything that I know of. I should listen now. Well, I've learned that th I have that's to listen the other twenty thing, times. No, it happened to both but, of us because I took a recording or I took the video, and I didn't think I got anything either. Yeah, uh, with the DR sixty or or my videotape, I kind of brushed it off. Well, I didn't really listen that carefully either. It, yeah, it's not out of that. It's either. like we're too busy to kind of go and scrutinize this stuff. But apparently, there was something there because I heard it on Scott's recording, and I people have said that there is something on the two recordings that I got. Yeah, I, I should have taken the DR sixty. I am now pursuing through people that I met that day that I was there, the possibility of us going in there and actually doing a proper investigation. Yeah. So we'll see about that. So I didn't take the recorder. My point about that is that it's like this thing that sits in my house that it has still kind of a vibe around it. Yeah. And I hesitate to do anything with it. I don't want to make any more recordings in my house, at least not right now. <laughs> Although I will say whatever's on file one that we played at the end of part three, where it sounds like it's saying, I can't tell when I say, mm -hmm. who are you? That didn't feel threatening to me. Nowhere near the feeling that I had no. in the Sally no. house. It's more of that, this stuff's around you all the time. That's what I've been trying all to tell you. All the time. It's around yeah. you right now. Yeah. You 
right now talking to you listening to this. <laughs> yeah. It's there. They're there. Whether you believe in them or not. Whether you believe in them or not, they're there. And that's the realization that, I, that I'm coming around to. Right. So we were doing a Skype chat with Debbie Chestnut, our friend that we were just talking about. And Debbie was, I think, as much as anything, kind of wanting to check on me. She's mm -hmm. been trying to sort of take care of me from afar, which I greatly appreciate. And just checking in with us and having a little talk with us. And we've chatted with her a bunch. And I love talking to her. She's just so matter of fact, no nonsense. Yeah, you know. yeah. Forrest and I were in Blanket Fortiana in the studio. And then she was where she lives. And we were Skyping with her. And we both had our Skypes on, but we were facing each other like we do on our desk. And we keep one of the computers muted to avoid feedback. So we were having this long discussion. During this discussion, one of the topics that came up was an artist's rendering of something that Tony saw at the house once, this thing that he calls the thing by the bed. And this rendering is very, very uh, unsettling. It's a humanoid type creature that looks as though it's made from, I don't know what, it's dark and crazy looking. <laughs> well, it's got, a, it's got like, a really grotesque tongue hanging out that some people have thought was a piece of bacon or yes, joking about yes, it. Yes, I like it that. Does, yeah, it does look like that, but it's a horrible, grotesque thing that an artist rendered as a sculpture to approximate what Tony saw. What Tony saw near in his bed. Is. Right. Yeah. So, Which is not kind and warm and fuzzy and a cute little girl. No. This thing is pretty frightening looking, especially if you consider that it's inspired by something that was seen in real life. Next to your bed. Next to your bed. Yeah. So after talking about that with Debbie, I found the picture and I introduced it into the chat stream in Skype and sent it to her so she could take a look at it. Right. Forrest had already seen it, but we wanted her to see if she had any impressions on it. So I sent that as an image through Skype's text mechanism that it has built into Skype. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about the house and Debbie was saying, look, and in all respect to the Pickmans, I just want to be real candid about how this conversation went. She was saying, you know, everyone's heard the story, the hauntings, everyone knows those stories. Be sure when you guys cover this, she goes, I'm getting a sense that it wants you to make sure you tell the story or something wants you to tell the story mm -hmm. of the spirits that are in the house. Right. And I said back to her, well, I'm happy to do that. First of all, sounded a little like a threat. Not from Debbie, but it was just like, be sure you do this. Be sure oh, you that talk she was about getting, yes. what's in the, And so I, I said, okay, that's great. We can do that. But here's the thing. And I said the words, I don't know who they are. Yeah. And the minute I finished that sentence, that picture of that thing popped up in my Skype window. Now, I did not have the chat window open anymore. I had closed it. Right. So what I had on my desktop was the side-by-side -side of Debbie and then Forrest, who was also sitting straight across from me. So it popped up, this monster popped up on the screen right as I said, I don't know what's in that house. Yeah. And then on top of that, it made a cute little noise. It went... And I heard it, yeah. Yeah, and, and I saw you, you react. Yeah, no, I, I saw you react. You're like, whoa, whoa, what? To restate this, I said, I don't know what's in that house. And then that picture popped up. Yeah. So I stopped the conversation. I said to Forrest and Debbie, I could see Forrest was not touching his computer at all. It was yeah. he was leaning back and talking on Skype, and I could see Debbie too, who was smoking cigarette and sitting back. She didn't have anything. She wasn't touching the computer either. Right. So then I said, Did you just send that picture back to me? And she said. No. She said, why? And I said, well, the picture, right when I said, I don't know what's in the house, the minute I finished that sentence, that picture popped up like one of you guys sent it to me. But I can see Forrest right here. Yeah. 
and so that would I think that would mean that you would have had to resend it to me. And she said, "No, I didn't send it to you." And so that was a really weird moment for me. But I wanted to get further. I was like, "Why did it pop up right when I said I don't know what's in the house?" And then this yeah. monster pops up. Well, it showed you. So then I reached out to Skype. Here is the discussion that I had with Skype. And I want to tell you guys what she said. I spoke with Mary L. at Skype Support, and I got a copy of the chat stream. Thank you for contacting Microsoft Support. I'm Mary. How can I help you today? And I said, hi, Mary. Trying to get an answer to what I think is a simple technical question regarding the chat feature within Skype. Something strange happened to me during a call, and I wanted to know if you could explain it. She wrote back, please go ahead. I said, an image that was sent via text during a three-way phone call, popped back up for the sender during the conversation, that being me. I'm trying to determine why that might have happened. To be clear, three people on the call, persons A, B, and C. Person A, that would be me, sent an image via Skype chat to persons B and C. Person A then resumed conversation with chat portion of window closed. During ongoing conversation with persons B and C, the image popped back up on person A's screen during conversation. Neither person B or C had sent the image back, and neither one was touching their computers. All three were chatting via laptop, and in fact, persons B and C were in the same room together. The image just popped up out of the blue as an overlay on person A's screen, which at the time the chat window was closed and only person B and person C's cameras were visible. It opened up with a little pop-up sound mid-conversation. Can you explain why this would happen? I would think this could only happen if person B or person C downloaded the image and then went to the trouble to reintroduce it to the Skype chat stream, resending it back to only person A because person B and person C did not see it pop back up. She asked some questions. Were you on a group call? And I said yes, and I explained that. And I explained that my chat window was closed again. And she came back and said, to sum up, you're on the group chat call and the image that you sent randomly popped up on your screen. Is that correct? And I said, yes, the image I sent, I went ahead and did away with my anonymity as person A. The image I sent popped back up later onto my screen as though someone was sending it back to me. She then asked if we were all using Skype version 8. I knew that Forrest and I were. I don't know what Debbie was using, and I still don't. I haven't asked her, just to be clear. She said, can I know the troubleshooting steps you've done? And I just said, look, my main question is, can another participant on a call do something that would cause an image that was already sent to reappear like that? Or is the only way an image would pop up like that is if it was being sent for the first time to the participants on the call? She said, if they're sending a new image, the new message will pop up, not the image that you sent. And I said, but let's say I received an image in a text from someone else. Is there anything I can do to cause that image to bounce back to the original sender and pop up on their screen without resending it myself as a new image. And she said, might be there's a system glitch here, since this is not normal. Mm -hmm. Next question was, have you tried to uninstall and reinstall Skype? That's where, you know, <laughs> like, you know you're going... Turn off the machine yeah. and turn it back on again. So that was it. She said, might be a glitch. This is not normal. Yeah. So as far as I can tell, there's no reason that that thing should have popped up in the middle of my conversation, especially right as I finished the sentence saying, I don't know what's in that house. Yeah, well, there's a supernatural reason. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> what I'm wondering. <laughs> what, and I'm 1,600 yeah. miles away, and that's what I thought about when Taylor yeah. said, it doesn't matter No, there, there's no time or space. It's all uh, in the continuum here. There's the Akashic Record, the Spiritus Mundi, it's whatever you want to call it. It's the band of thought that encircles the earth, 
by which all this stuff travels. But that goes back to our idea that somehow electronic things are able to be manipulated and they can do it. They know what a JPEG is. You know, like they have more ease sending that than your grandmother probably. How did it get into the call? How did it know we were having a call? How did it, if I'm to believe all this, I mean, yeah. I would think that it would maybe somehow come through Debbie because she has a gift and, you know. No, but this but... happens to regular people. You know, spontaneous crisis apparition. How does somebody know that their child is hurt or a parent passes away and they're thousands of miles away? What connection is that there? It doesn't have to do with proximity. It's thought. Thoughts are things. At least I believe that. So there is some tangible connection there. And when you think of something... There is intent, there's thought, and uh, there's a real tendril of sorts. And who knows? There's kind of a psychic thing that happens. But yeah, that happens all the time. It's not that unusual if you're willing to go there. If, and if you don't want to go there, then it's just a weird, everything is a very strange coincidence. So the next day, something else happened. And this is the last story that I'm going to share. Yeah. Um, and I think it's an important one here. Yeah. I found your take on it kind of comforting. And I actually, I had forced mentioned our friends, Roger and Jill, who are paranormal investigators and uh, folks that we talk to fairly frequently on text anyway. I'm going to read what I wrote to them because I wrote this right after it happened in a text to them. <laughs> this is a strange, a really strange story for me, but basically... I was sitting at a light returning to my neighborhood after getting some gas in my car and running sort of normal daily errands. And the light was at a very, very busy cross street near where I live, Laurel Canyon Boulevard, actually. I was waiting from a small neighborhood street to cross Laurel Canyon. And I was feeling unusually mellow and introspective, but I was also found myself kind of wondering about the power of this thing in Kansas because I was trying to deal with the idea that somehow it had forced that picture to come up on the Skype call the day before. The crux of the feeling I was having was actually a really safe one, a very positive and warm one. But at the same time, I was wondering, what if I'm having a false sense of security right now? And then I had the very, very specific thought, completely specific, that what if I drove out into this intersection and I got T-boned, like I got hit? Yeah, straight on, because people are flying up and down that street, and I'm on this little side street. And I thought, if that happened, would I always wonder if whatever that thing was was making it happen? And this was even before I had spoken to Taylor. I didn't know that just the suggestions of things following you home, that was something new to me, that idea. But in my mind, I thought I was wondering about that. So I'm sitting there at this light, I had my windows down, even though it was hot, and I'd had a pretty relaxing day, believe it or not. Forrest and I had worked until 1.30 in the morning the night before recording, and I had gotten to go back to bed after I got up to get my son to school. So I was feeling kind of rested and on the recovery side of our show, which is how I'm hoping to feel tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I'm sitting at the light and for a reason that I still cannot clarify, I actually shifted the car into park. It's not that long a light, but I put right. it in park and I also set the emergency brake. That's odd. And the emergency brake in my car, it's electronic. Like you just pull. Yeah, you, you right. Know, it's it's not like that really lever. difficult hand emergency brake. So, but it's easy to do. So I, I pulled that up and the emergency brake went on and I was just kind of sitting there. My feet were off the pedals. So I'm in park and I'm still thinking about what if I got T-boned if I went through the intersection. I was in a little bit of a daze 
and there was no one behind me. If somebody had been behind me, I might not have taken these steps because I'm self-conscious about sitting at lights since everybody does that these days and it drives me absolutely insane because everyone's on their cell phone. So then I was thinking about going home and I realized, I looked up and realized that the light had changed. It was green. And not only that, it had been green for a while because a bunch of cars, oncoming cars from the other side had moved through the intersection. And I would say the light only had a few more seconds before it was going to turn red. So I, I noticed that all the traffic on the other side had pretty much moved through the intersection and I need to get going because it's kind of a short light for the cross traffic on the less traveled street. I could tell it was about to turn yellow. So I reached down, I put the transmission back into drive, and then I just stepped on the gas. But the emergency brake stuck for a second. It made it hesitate. But since it's an electronic one, then it released it mm -hmm. automatically because it knows if you start trying to drive with the brake up. And the car rolled forward maybe about six inches to a foot possibly. And then I looked up and to my left, coming down Laurel Canyon Boulevard from the north to the south, an older white Toyota Prius sailed through the intersection in the lane most immediately in front of me at full speed, which would have been 35 or 40 miles an hour probably. I mean, just didn't even touch the brakes. The light had been green a long time for me. Mm -hmm. So their light was red and had been red yeah, a long time. Yeah. It wasn't trying to make a light. It was like a blatant disregard for the red light. Well, this person was distracted, obviously. It, they were it. distracted. And the whole thing was like in slow motion. And I had just been sitting there thinking, if I got T-boned in this intersection, could it be that thing in Kansas? Mm -hmm. Should I be extra careful? Even though I never had the conscious thought that I'm going to sit here a minute to be safe. I never thought that. I sat there for some other reason that is completely unknown to me to this day. And then like, as soon as I got through the intersection, I pulled over and I called Forrest. Yeah. And I said, dude, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. Yeah. And now I realize I sound crazy. This is a crazy <laughs> sounding story. Yeah. And Forrest started, immediately started writing the movie, <laughs> no. the Forrest movie. Where he's like, did yeah. he look evil? Did he look at you? And I, I thought, well, well, hey, that's not out of the ordinary because we have heard a story of strangers acting with extreme anger unprovoked to people we know yeah and i mean just like you're there at the gas station and somebody drives by on the street and just screams at you maybe it's mistaken identity but like they're gonna kill you yeah i mean that level of anger and it disturbs you yeah and I've heard it a few times in my life in my neighborhood as well just it wasn't directed at me but just it was somebody yelling at somebody and it was so vicious you could feel it and it made you sick so when you said that it's like you might think it's funny it's like you're looking for the movie or whatever but i'm going off of what you thought it's like oh my gosh is this evil thing reaching out from the midwest to kill me or to visit violence and suffering upon me what's going on here so it's like okay well let's take a look and break this down what did the guy look like and so that was pretty benign right he turned yeah. his head he like, looked sorry. at me yeah. he put his he held his hand up and yeah. it was like an apologetic like i'm sorry yeah he looked right at me but there was no malice yeah. or whatever and, and so feeling. at that moment my takeaway was if this is related to that thing right then it's a pawn it's just a pawn. It's just part of like whether he got distracted yeah. with a phone or distracted yeah. with a thought. It's also just or LA yeah, or anywhere else. Yeah, it is LA. Right. But uh, yeah, it's not weird that a car ran a light. No, no. You know, Leading up to it is an odd sequence. Yeah, of everything that was going events. through my yeah, mind and right. the emergency brake, the fact that I was in park, that I was thinking about getting in an accident of that exact type, and the fact that it was in my immediate lane. There's two lanes it could have been in going yeah. that direction. 
had I rolled out when the light was green, that guy would have hit me. Yeah. There's no question. Right. He absolutely would have hit me. It would not have killed me because I have a big SUV and he was in a Prius, but it would have mm. been a real bad day. Oh, and sure. And it might have killed him. Yeah. I'm so glad that it didn't happen. Yeah. Well, you got to look at the other a... angle. Who's looking out for that guy? Yeah. Did he have a guardian angel on his shoulder telling him, put down the phone, idiot. Yeah. You're about to go through a red light. Yeah. And he did anyway, but it stalled you. But your initial reaction, though, your your gut feeling was what, you would say? That I had been protected. Yeah. We started this show. I'm like, nothing weird happens to me. And now I'm just like, it's every other day. <laughs> it's not every other day. <laughs> it's just that things happen all the time. You're noticing it with a different spin on it. It was and comforting, though, because it took me off the ledge, I think. The ledge that I was on was like, will I ever be able to stop worrying about this thing? It's like, it's sending me selfies <laughs> and Skype conversations, right, right, you know? Yeah. And that's where I was at. It was strange. It was strange. Well, you know, you asked me for my opinion, and I think we got done recording real late here one night, and something you'd said, you had some weird, funky belief system <laughs> involving the super friends and the, the 12 supreme beings or whatever they are, you, who, who knows what it is, but you were pretty agnostic, I would say, as far as a traditional belief system in that sense. I think you kind of thought that there was maybe a supreme order or supreme prime mover, let's say, or a supreme being, but not really sure that there was one single supreme being or anything like that, right? What did you believe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. believed more in the force. I probably leaned more towards Buddhism. A Star Wars thing. I believed in... Metachlorians. You know, I did believe in positive energy. I did believe sure, in sure. that versus... Right. There are, and there, I still believe in that. Yeah, there are things outside uh, of us personally, right? Yeah. That did you believe in an afterlife? That we go somewhere, we're not just a moldering in the ground. I believed in the possibility of it. Okay. All right. I so, did believe in the possibility of that. Yeah. yeah. You were willing to believe, but it's like a true agnostic. It's like you want to get some proof. You want to see a sign first before you're going to lean one way or the other. Is that you want something more cognitive to hang on to? And when we came back from Atchison and you had heard that and it spooked you. You were saying to me, I think I've heard the voice of evil now, and that has shaken me, that something has screamed at me quite literally, that is not good to say the least. It may not be from the depths of hell, but it was something that was very negative that shouldn't have been there. That should not have happened. By all means, in our normal world, that recording should not have happened. We heard nothing in there. We don't believe it was a transmission of any kind. It was not interference. Hearing it back doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sound like any interference we've ever heard. And the words that come through don't make any sense other than as answers to our questions, no matter what you interpret. And when you were saying that to me, it's like, yeah, I've, I think I faced evil here and it's freaking me out. And I was trying to tell you, it's like, but it's always balanced with the positive. There's always good. And I believe it's stronger force just slightly may not seem like that to a lot of people right now in the world, but it is a stronger force, just a little bit more than the negative. Going back to Orfeo Angelucci, his idea that was given to him by his kind aliens that visit upon him some knowledge, that negative is a self-destructing force, that it will eventually swallow its own soul and destroy itself, that there has to be a balance and the universe strives for balance. And I believe that. And I said, well, what about the good that happens? What about the positive things, the things that might point to a benevolent supreme being of your choosing? 
And your answer basically then was like, well, I just need more proof. I need to see some evidence of that. I've seen such a strong presence of the negative that I just need some strong showing of something good. And my point was like, these showings of something benevolent and good and positive and maybe supreme are subtle and that the negative things are much more dramatic. They make much more of an impact. They scare you. And that's their purpose. That's what they want out of you. Fear is a powerful emotion. And the tiny good things that happen, we often take for granted. We don't always appreciate them. And that is the whole line of thinking about the attitude of gratitude and how that's beneficial. It delivers good things to you if you are grateful for things, but we're often not. We only see the negative. And when you focus on the negative, you tend to attract that. So that's a whole other discussion. But for you, my point is like, well, there's an old saying, do not ask God to meet you halfway. Faith requires faith. And if you are going to open yourself up to good things, you shouldn't ask for proof. But on the other hand, proof is all around you if you just look and you open yourself up and you appreciate. And I think that's what happened to you at that intersection. Something stalled you. You don't have to look at it that way, but I think it's a very positive thing to think that something was looking out for you and your safety. And who knows what that is? Who can say? But something delayed you just a little bit to keep you and this other guy from something very bad. Take that as a blessing. Why not? I am. <laughs> yeah. I am. I am. So where does that leave us now? I think the first place that people want to go to with regard to that house is to try to identify what's there. And I think there's a lot of things there. And I do too. I think some of those things, actually probably the majority of them, are not necessarily bad. But I think there's one bad thing yeah. that either comes and goes or lays dormant sometimes for whatever reason. But when it's there, it's real there. Yeah, and I believe it has control over the other things there. It's somehow, yeah, controlling or trapping possibly yeah. these other spirits that might be there. Well, that was my first impression. I don't know. I mean, I know yours was utter terror and just a questioning of your entire existence. Mine. All right. I think they get it. I was scared. <laughs> not to say I that. feel better now. Just want to make that clear. No, I'm not even saying that so much scared. I don't know how many it's... times we have to talk about how terrified I was. <laughs> well, you brought up most of them. What I'm saying <laughs> is that uh, your initial reaction was that this is beyond my expectations. As I said earlier in tonight's episode, it's like this should not be on here. And this does not sound good. And this sounds like it was directed at me. It's not just fear because, again, it's not a horror movie. And then you got Freddy Krueger jumping out at you from a closet. I actually kind of liked Freddy. It's not something like that where it's tangible. It's totally a feeling, but it was a real feeling. And that has not just fear for you, but why it was so impactful, I believe, to you is that it carried with it all these other things it's the zip file. It's the metadata within the screaming because people hear it and it's like, well, I just, yeah, boy, it sounds angry and that's scary. But with that comes so many other feelings. And I think for you, it was a questioning of like, what is going on here? What is on the other side? What is possible? Because this shouldn't be possible. And that <laughs> makes you question your whole belief system in the span of a minute. You know, when I kind of assess that, the first thing that I heard is that it does sound like there's a bunch of things trying to speak of all various backgrounds, and there's one thing shouting them down. That was my first major impression, that something is shouting them out, not letting them speak, or talking over them like, this is my house, MF. I have a name. Now leave me alone and get out of here, and I control all of this. 
that there's some kind of, if not malevolent, then some kind of negative and very upset entity. And I've kind of adjusted my thinking a little bit after all this time in that there's something else about the recording in and of itself that people hear different words in it depending on their mindset, their belief system, their biological hearing setup, you know, what their brains are allowing them to hear or, or making them hear. But it might change. It has changed for us hearing different words in it at different times. There's something about that recording that is kind of weird and special. And at the very least, beyond just a malfunctioning old recorder from the 90s or static. There's just something about it. And what I can tell from what has been transcribed or translated is that there's two conversations going on, essentially. One between different personalities or entities on the other side, talking amongst themselves about us and other who knows what else, but also talking to us directly. And it's not just maybe one thing, but it seems like mostly one thing, talking to us, answering our questions, telling us, I have a name, now leave me alone, or get out, or whatever it is, talking to us, but also discussing us amongst each other, amongst themselves. That is kind of the overall general impression I got. I think that all makes sense. And I think personally, for me, if you're going to ascribe a human to the most powerful thing there, after all our research and everything we've explored, my money is on it being connected to MC Finney. Yeah, I felt and that I, way too. I want to be clear that I don't know anything about him or his family or his descendants, and I don't mean to malign him. No, no. Like, I just, it makes more sense to me than the Sally story and his son, C.C. Finney or Dr. Finney who has been connected to, you know, that whole the botch surgery thing. That all to me yeah. seems apocryphal. It's it's a great story. It's great the, folklore. Right. There does seem to be a little girl theme. Yeah. And I think that's comes there. Up. And that's what I said when I was saying, I'm not convinced that that's bad, right. what that is. But it, there's something there that's more powerful. And I can't get past the fact that Tony on the sightings episode had that MC carved into his back. Yeah. And that is yeah. one hell of a coincidence. Yes, it is. Again, and they didn't yeah. even know who he was. Right. They probably never heard of MC Finney at yeah. that point. Not at that point. I seriously doubt they knew who built the house in the 1800s. Right. And here's another thing that made sense to me as we were discussing that very thing there uh, and the MC being scratched in his back. When we pick up a recording and something is telling us, this is my house, and a possible swear word, get out. Whose house would it be? Exactly. Who built that house? M.C. Finney did. He built it. He lived there. He built it for his family. And he died there. Well, this is what I know. I don't get to draw firm conclusions very often on our show, because <laughs> we, our show is... It's like Gilligan's Island. We're never going to get off the island. We, we don't know the answer to a lot of these stories. <laughs> right, you know, and right. the last time I drew an even remotely firm conclusion was uh, Amelia Earhart being held prisoner on Saipan, even yeah. though evidence for that isn't necessarily any better than it is for I'm going on because there were lots of eyewitnesses. That was why I leaned towards that. And even now, I'm a strong supporter of Bill Snavely and the Buka theory where he is working. Again, not mutually exclusive. Not necessarily two, yeah. mutually exclusive, right. but I can't say that we've made a lot of proclamations in the 100 and almost 30 episodes we've done now. But the proclamation that I'm going to make now, based on the research that we did and the trip that we took to Atchison, Kansas, to the Sally House, and all the experts that we talked to, 
is that that house is haunted, hauntings are real, and the EVP we got is real, and whatever is there is non-terrestrial and sentient. That's going to wrap up our series on the Sally House. We'd like to offer a sincere special thanks to all of the guests we had that made it possible. Tony, Deborah, and Taylor Pickman, Maria Miller, Les Smith, Tess Feifel, Megan Winning, Dr. Sean Daly, Ryan Geckner, Joshua Lewis, Ed Primo, Dave Fisk, Craig Underwood and his associates at the Ham Radio Outlet, the Atchison Chamber of Commerce, and last but most certainly not least, the Astonishing Research Corps. We're dark next week for Thanksgiving and dark the following week as well for general recuperation. But we'll be back the weekend of December 7th with a brand new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. V-I-V-I-A-N-S-G-R-A-N-D-N-A. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Would we be able to call on you in the future to talk about that kind of stuff if that happens again? Because we, I mean, we have traced at least 10 or 15 stories in North America, easy, back to when you look in the way back history of it, it, you wind up on sacred ground in a lot of cases. And I I was wondering if that's something you'd be interested in chiming in on in the future. Yeah, I'm actually more comfortable talking about that stuff than this stuff. Okay, good. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Okay. uh, Yeah, I got no problem talking about that stuff. Uh, Great. I do it quite a bit. So yeah, anything Native American, if I wasn't qualified for some reason, if it was something I just out of my area of, of knowledge... I got so many colleagues around Kansas City who are native because I'm not right. I'm an Irish kid from Jersey. Right. But I got tons of native colleagues around here who do that stuff too. So yeah, if I couldn't do it, I could easily get you in touch with somebody who would love to do that. Okay. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's great. Have you ever heard of Skinwalker Ranch? <laughs> First <laughs> reservation I ever worked on was the Navajo reservation. Spent a lot of time out there. I actually have three adopted children who are Navajo. Okay. So I still spend a lot of time out here. First paranormal experience I will own up having was with a skinwalker. Really? What year would that have been? It would have been 1995. We were north of Chinle, Arizona. It was middle of the night. Ran into a skinwalker, according to every Navajo I know, still to this day. I cannot explain what the hell I saw or what I experienced, but yeah. What did you uh, see? Honestly, me and my wife were driving down the road. We had flown in. I had this big, uh, it was a rented, I think it was like a Toyota Land Cruiser or or whatever the hell those SUVs are. Uh Driving down this dirt road, it's probably about 11 o'clock at night. We're going back to where we were staying, and 
I see this animal kind of meander out onto the road and it slowly walks out onto the road and looks at us coming down the road and just stands there and watches us. And I kind of slow down because I can't tell what it is thinking it's a coyote or something. I get close and it's too big to be a coyote and it kind of looks at us and it slowly walks around the truck looking at us, kind of checks us out and then just slowly walks off back into the desert. Now, in Navajo, we call those things, you know, droshi. It's essentially a skinwalker. And I know video games and paranormal shows have screwed this up, but they're a Navajo thing. They're not an American Indian thing. Skinwalkers are Navajo. They're witches. They're what we call chindi, people who transform into animals. Usually it's a bear, a coyote, or an owl. These things have certain cultural connotations among Navajos. When they present themselves, they often look like an animal, but there's something off with them. Their paws aren't right. They're too big. Something's not fitting the true biology of that animal. And I remember this thing kind of had coyote qualities, but it was bigger than a freaking timber wolf. And there's no timber wolves up that way. I'm like, what the hell is this thing? First thing everyone told me next day I started telling people, they're like, you saw a skinwalker. They're like, that thing was out looking for something. You ran across a skinwalker. And again, I don't know what the hell that was, but it was too big to be a coyote. And again, as far as I know, there's no wolves around running around that part of Arizona. Yeah. So I don't know what the hell that was, but every Navajo to this day will tell me that was clearly a skinwalker. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 